Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today's movie is an uh, interesting one. I do not do a lot a whole lot of sports movies on Staff Picks and that's not really intentional. I mean, I love sports. I'm a big sports guy. It's just that for some reason, I don't think there's actually that many really good sports movies that also have mainstream uh, crossover appeal. But the movie today, this is a fun one because this is one that was pitched to me and I had never considered it for staff picks. But I had a couple of people come up to me and say, you know, there's this great college basketball movie from the 90s, Blue Chips. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I I remember that one. I saw it in the theater. I was in college at the time. I was a big college basketball fan at the time. So so I know this movie very well. But I just hadn't thought of it in like 30 years. I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be an interesting movie to talk about. So I got a copy of it. I uh, found a guest that liked it. And, yeah, this will be one of my rare sports movies on staff picks. And if I time it and uh, edit everything correctly, I can actually release it in time for March Madness this year. So this will be one of my rare topical uh, episodes. So let's see here. My guest for this episode, he is a uh, sports writer based out of Indiana. Uh, He's got his own website where he writes sports articles. Big time basketball fan. I believe he also teaches or at least taught a class on journalism. And he's the one that really, really wanted to talk about this movie because he loves it so much. So welcome to Staff Picks for the very first time, Paul Oren. Hey, Mario, thank you so much for being here. This is really fitting that... You're on the West Coast, and I'm in Indiana right now because Blue Chips is about a basketball team called the Western University Dolphins from Los Angeles, but the whole movie was shot in Indiana, Uh, and and, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit, but no, I am thrilled to be here. I am a sports writer. I cover Valparaiso University in Northwest Indiana. I've taught journalism classes, and I've I'm from Wisconsin originally, but then I moved to Indiana and everyone here loves the movie Hoosiers. And to me, Blue Chips is the best basketball movie that's out there and certainly the best college basketball movie that's out there. Uh, It's near and dear to my heart for a number of different reasons. And I'm thrilled to be on the guest, a guest on the show today. All right. Wait wait a minute. So I think you're going to start a fight real early here. Did you just say that Blue Chips is better than Hoosiers? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, yeah, that's good. I mean, I, I like people who make bold statements and then are going to stand by them later. I, I personally love both movies. I wouldn't really compare them, but that would not be a popular opinion that Blue Chips is better than Hoosiers. Would you agree with that? Well, no, it's not a popular opinion. And to be clear, Hoosiers is a phenomenal movie. There's not that it's a great movie. Um, it's just the people around here in Indiana where I live. It's like. When they go to bed at night and their nightstand, they have a copy of the Bible and they have their VHS tape of Hoosiers. And it's like those are the two things that they have next to their nightstand or in their nightstand. Blue Chips is okay. Is it as great as Hoosiers all in totality? Maybe not, but it's certainly tied with five minutes to go in the game. I'll put it to you that way. It's a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie um, that captures a special moment in time in college basketball that really is very, very resonant still today, 30 some odd years later. I don't know that Hoosiers is still resonant today, 30 years, you know, or 25 years later, whenever they made the movie. 
Yeah, yeah. And one thing I wanted to say to that, because that's actually a really good point. And I like the way you phrase that. Because, yeah, Hoosiers is specific to a place in time. Now, I'd argue Blue Chips is also pretty much specific to a place in time. Like, when you watch this movie, I, I could not have been transported more back to 1994 when I watched this movie. I'm like, wow, this really feels like 1994, college basketball. Like, everything about it is so specific to that one moment in time. But like you said, this movie really isn't about basketball. And yeah, you didn't say it exactly like this, but it's not about basketball. It's about ethics. And ethics is not specific to one place in time. Ethics is timeless. In fact, ethics in college sports is timeless. And in fact, even more so today. So I absolutely understand what you're saying when you say that. Yeah. And again, it it touches on a lot of things that have maybe gone away a little bit with the uh, advent of the name image and likeness deals that now college athletes are able to get but there's a bit in here about sports betting and that is huge now and you have to think about maybe uh, how how much is that going to be prevalent today there's just a lot in this movie that again you're right it takes us back to 1994 even the way the the movie is shot the credit sequences the voiceovers and all that stuff very very 90s feel um but again, some of the topics are still, again, very relevant today. Yeah, and there's one thing I want to say right here at the outset, and that is, I know this movie, this episode may not appeal to a lot of non-sports fans. Again, this is a very, very sports-specific movie, very specific to a place and time, the culture, the language used in the movie. But again, at its heart, it really is a movie about ethics. And there's one thing you just mentioned I want you to expand on if you could. I know a lot of people who aren't sports fans might not know this, uh, the likenesses and names of college players and games and stuff. Can you expand on that for people a little bit? Because I actually just learned about this recently, and I didn't realize this was such a big topic these days. Yeah, and so this, I mean, going back to 1994 when Blue Chips came out, it was such a big deal because they had just gotten a couple of guys who were recent college basketball players who were able to be in this movie. And you know, back then you really you couldn't trade on your name in any way, shape or form. If you were a college athlete, um, you know, there's stories of a guy at Indiana University, uh, Steve Alford, who got himself. He was uh, in a, a calendar for like a, a philanthropy event for one of the sororities, like a calendar selling it to raise money for for charity. And because he was in this calendar and he had his Indiana jersey on, he ended up getting suspended by the NCAA. Um, you know, again, this was in the in the 90s, the 80s and 90s that this kind of stuff happened. Fast forward to today, the NCAA has kind of realized that, look, they can't fight against this stuff anymore. So within the last year, uh, they, they've put into place now that you can get a name, image and likeness deal if you're an athlete. What that means for a lot of these guys today, uh, men and women, as a matter of fact, is that they'll cut a deal with their Instagram account, right? So they'll they'll hype up a couple of things on Instagram. Or maybe it's as, it's like the University of Texas, their offensive linemen all got, uh, I think they all got a deal with like a pancake house in town or something like that. Um, you're seeing bigger athletes sign multi-million dollar deals to, to promote everything from energy water to car dealerships and things like that. And there's, again, an ethical thing today. How much can the schools be involved in kind of doing this? If I recruit you, Mario, and say, if you come to my school, I'm going to make sure that the Ford dealer gives you whatever car you want. Um, you know, people are going to people are going to jump at that sort of thing. And it might not be about playing time anymore. It might be about the nicer car, or the better apartment and all of those things. 
Yeah, okay. So basically to sum this up, for people who don't know this movie, uh, who don't know college sports, it's a movie about a coach who is forced to cheat and start paying kids to come to his college. Because that's uh, really kind of is the underlying problem in college basketball is that you're not supposed to be paid. The players are not allowed to be paid in any shape or form whatsoever. But the co- the coaches in the booster clubs will still find a way to do it anyway because you got to find some way to attract the best kids to the best schools. And in the 90s, the parents of the kids were starting to get more savvy. They knew this. They would start to demand stuff under the table. And so it's really an ethical movie about should this be happening in college sports at all? And I guess that leads to the second question. It's going to happen anyway, so how do you police it? Or even worse, how do you get away with it? What I mean, what are the two ways to do it? So that's what I really find interesting about this movie. And like Paul said, it's so much a bigger thing now than it was in the 90s, isn't it? Absolutely. And there's a great scene in the movie where um, one of the characters, the mother of one of the basketball players, is kind of it's explained to her look we can't do this we the that's against the rules and she basically responds with they're not my rules and that's where a lot of these people have been coming for the last 30 years people who have been coming through college basketball basically saying like if you're going to put my kid on a billboard to kind of sell tickets for your school and and all of that or or moreover cbs is going to have a billion dollar multi-billion dollar contract with the ncaa for for march madness why shouldn't the players get a cut of it? And if that means a car or a house or a job for their parent or a tractor, it gave a kid a tractor, which is one of my favorite, one of my favorite quotes of the entire movie. Um, it uh, there's a whole bunch of different aspects to this uh, uh, duffel bags full of cash. And a lot of this movie is based in reality. There was a thing that happened at the University of Kentucky in the 80s where uh, they somebody messed up and and tried to mail money through the (laughs) u.s public uh, post office and uh the envelope broke open during its uh transfer from one place to another and and they just right there had the return address on there in front of god and everybody and um it you know the one thing about and and you can we can argue about whether or not it's it's criminality uh because we are talking about ethics and there is a difference but but the one thing about criminals is they often give you a shot to catch them. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we, we, we've seen a lot of people be sloppy. Boston College had a point shaving scandal that goes all the way tying back to people who were uh, Henry Hill, who was a character in Goodfellas. That was a guy that <laughs> that was tied in. So um, the 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 shadiness of college basketball um, has been around everywhere. This movie gave it names and faces and, and albeit a good soundtrack and, and just fun, uh, fun, colorful uniforms. And you put Shaq on the front cover of the movie and, and sign me up. I'm going to it. Yeah. And that's funny because like it's portrayed as a very positive movie. And I remember this at the time too. That's how they would bill it. Oh, it's got Shaquille O'Neal. It's got Penny Hardaway. It's got like Bobby Knight and Rick Pitino. It's a big celebration of college basketball, but that's not really what the movie is. It's not presenting college basketball or college sports in a good way at all. And and although this is what's really interesting, and I want to get your thoughts on this before we delve into the plot too far. I've watched Blue Chips three times in the last week, just in, in preparation for this podcast. And it really stri- what really strikes me is two things. Number one, it's not a very uh, efficient or powerful movie. I think the story is hard to tell. Like, it's telling a story... But the way it's executed is really not that memorable or that effective. So that's why I think maybe this movie isn't remembered all that well. 
But the other thing that jumps out at me is that there's not really a bad guy in this movie. I mean, okay, there's the character Happy. You can make the argument for Happy. We'll get to him. Happy, yeah. But uh, but really, none of the characters is really acting out of malice or ill intent in this movie. They're just saying, you know, this is the way that I have to do it. And it sucks, but we're just going to do it because that's all we have. So it's interesting that the way it's presented in the movie is that there's not really a villain. They're just playing the hand that they've been dealt, which is a very interesting storyline. Yeah, and, and you're right, because at the at the end of the day, and and there's a... It's like great. The speech at the end of the movie is my favorite scene of the movie. And and uh, the coach walks in and, and obviously we'll get through the plot. But he basically says, I think. And I, and again, this is probably something that in 1994 you can put in a movie that I don't really know is aged well. But he says something. He kind of begins his end press conference with 50, 50 million Chinamen couldn't care less. And that and that's the thing about the about the, you know, when the movie ends, it, I don't know that you feel anything because, again, they're, they're, like, good didn't conquer evil and evil didn't conquer good. It was just kind of like this was a thing that happened. It was 108 minutes of a morality play. And, and when it was over, it was like, OK, well, he's <laughs> going to be coaching high school kids somewhere in, in the upper Midwest and uh, everyone else is going to go to the NBA. And um, it, was, it was fascinating. Okay, and one more thing I got to say. I, I got to talk about this. So this movie came out in 1994, and that apparently was like, this was not really common knowledge at the time that all this money was being made behind the scenes in college sports, right? Like, there was all this pressure that the players maybe should be getting some money, then the coaches were cheating to get the kids on the team. Like, if I'm correct, this is kind of a revolutionary story in 1994. This was not the type of stuff that we'd seen in movies before. Yeah, well, if if I can, for a moment before we get into the plot, tell you why this movie means so much to me, and it's it's around, it's kind of the time capsule there. Uh, Mara, I was I was born in 1980, and so I'm I'm 14, I'm I'm just about to turn 14 years old when this movie came out. Um, my dad was really big into baseball. My uh, my stepdad was really big into football, and I was big into both of those. But I found basketball on my own. And, and notably college basketball and the University of Wisconsin, where I grew up uh, in, in Milwaukee, they weren't very good. So the team that was on TV all the time when I was 11 and 12 years old was the University of Michigan. And they had this group called the Fab Five, these five freshmen who wore baggy shorts and black socks and had shaved heads. Um, they were all black. I'm a white kid from the middle of, you know, nowhere. And and I'm watching and they had my attention from the jump, right? I watched every single Michigan game for two years. I became a diehard Michigan fan. Everything that I wore was Michigan. I, I got the baggy shorts, the blacks. I got all of it, right? And so then Chris Weber goes to the NBA. The team kind of dissolves a little bit. Um, and in November of 1993, a book comes out called The Fab Five by Mitch Albom. Phenomenal book. And in that book, it talks a lot about how that team was put together, and it talks a lot about the recruiting that it took to get these guys to come in. Now, it doesn't tell the whole story because we learned a couple years later that there was a lot of boosters involved and under-the-counter money and, and all of that. But So I'm a 13-year-old kid, and that book comes out, and I read that thing cover to cover a million times. I still have my original copy. The binding is off. It's all that, but it's like, I mean, I'll take that with me to my grave. I love that story in that book. <laughs> and so on the strength of reading that book, this movie comes out, and the colors 
on the front cover of the VHS tape are blue and yellow, the same colors of University of Michigan's colors. Uh, it's also the same colors as UCLA's colors, which that's kind of the school that it might be modeled after out in LA. But I remember when this came out and I just thought, I just just drank in all of the Fab Five stuff for the last several years and this book. And now here's this movie that tells a fictional story of maybe a believable idea of how the Fab Five could have come together. And, and so in that time capsule of maybe four months, all of this stuff was kind of thrown at me as, a, as an impressionable kid. And that was when I fell in love with college basketball. And it's odd, one of the characters in this, Ed O'Neill, uh, you know, Al Bundy, who married with children, he plays a sports reporter. And I'll tell you, my athletic career ended right around this time due to an incredible lack of talent. <laughs> but I love being a storyteller. And so watching Ed O'Neill be the sports writer in this movie, I was like, that's a job that I can have. I can I can ask those questions. I can do that. And, and what do you know? Uh, 28 years later, here I am. I've been a college basketball reporter for, for two decades now. So you became Al Bundy. You know, I, I'm lazy. I sit on the couch, put my hand in my <laughs> pants. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say that's, a, that's an odd career path for a young man to be you know, <laughs> pining for as you're watching TV. I'd like to be Al Bundy. But yeah, I totally understand that. And I want to I want to share a little personal story today as well. It's not going to be quite as poignant as yours because I'm not a sports writer, but I was born in 1974, so I was a college freshman in 1993, which was when this movie came out. It was I was 20 years old in 1994, so I was a sophomore in college when this movie comes out. And I'm not sure I've talked about this on Staff Picks before. My kids are always yelling at me for name dropping, but so I, I, I try not to talk about the story too much, but I feel it's fair game during a college basketball episode. So anyway, my freshman year in college, I went to uh, Santa Clara University in California, and my freshman year of college, the first friend I ever had was this kid that uh, sat next to me in English class, sat in the back of the class, this little Canadian white kid named Steve Nash, who I'm sure you know. Obviously. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Steve Nash became my first friend in college. And I was not from California, and neither was he. He's from Victoria, British Columbia, and I'm from Seattle. So the two of us kind of hung out in the back of our English class, and we just kind of joke about stuff and we both didn't like Californians at the time. We didn't really feel like we fit in in California because we were both from out of state. So anyway, I made friends with this guy. And I had no idea he was a basketball player. Now, for people who don't know, Steve Nash is now in the NBA Hall of Fame, considered one of the greatest players of all time. So, like, he's a big deal. But I had no idea this little 19-year-old kid played basketball at the time. I, I just knew him as Steven from Victoria. So anyway, yeah, so Steve and I would kind of talk from time to time outside class, and we were friends, and I even became his English tutor for a while. I was his peer tutor, and, and then he started playing basketball, and he became this big deal. And you know, this is the reality of sports. Once you become a big elite athlete like him, your friends change. You're just friends with other elite athletes. So I didn't really see him much our last couple of years in college. But I'll always remember this, our junior year, this would be 1995 at Santa Clara, I was in a sports psychology class with him. And uh, in, in class, we were supposed to do a topic on anything involving sports or psychology or ethics or anything like that. And, and uh, the paper that Steve Nash chose, it was really fascinating because, keep this in mind, this is the exact year this movie came out, 1994. And Steve Nash, in a paper in college class, argued that college athletes should be paid. 
that was his whole, whole argument that, you know, the school's making money off of us. They're using our names, our likeness. We should be paid for being college athletes. And that argument did not go over well in our class in the mid-90s. Like, the kids in the class literally were angry about this. Like, why on earth? You're getting a, a scholarship to college. You're getting free college, free education. Why the hell should you get a salary, too? And even the teacher was like, Steve, no, I don't think that's really an appropriate topic. It's interesting, but I can't imagine why college athletes should be paid, blah, blah, blah. It's not really appropriate. And so, and it was funny because Steve Nash pointed out, again, he's only a 20-year-old kid. He's a college athlete at the time. And he said, uh, ethically and legally, it's very true that the schools are making money off these college athletes. They're making tons of money. Why shouldn't we be getting a cut too? Like we, they're using our likeness. And it's again, to this day, I still remember how poorly that idea went over at the time in front of my class. <laughs> and even to this day, I was just telling my wife about this episode the other day that we're doing blue chips. And I said, yeah, there was, I remember Steve Nash was in my class once and he was arguing that college athletes should be paid. And even today in 2022, my wife is like, no, hell no, no way. She's like, no, there's no way. These kids are taking scholarships from real students. These athletes are taking, you know, spots of kids who are there for academia. There's no way they should be getting paid to. Absolutely unacceptable. Again, this is very much a huge topic in sports and college athletics, even to this day. And anyway, I just wanted to point out that Steve Nash was very much ahead of his time when he proposed this back in the mid-90s. Absolutely. And again, it's a topic that I mean, if, if you ask me, I can go either way on it, right? I mean, yes, they get they get scholarships, they get their education paid for, but I'll also tell you that they're here to play basketball. Um, you know, the, the, all the characters in this film were there to play basketball, and you try being one of those players that goes up to the coach and says, "Hey, I can't make practice. I have a class that I have to take because I'm." I'm excited about my major and, and you're paying me to go to school. Um, no, be in practice, you know, like, and, and that's just kind of how it is. So, um, yeah, again, this movie for its time and place, excellent. And I think it's aged well, and I can't wait to get into it. Okay. Well, okay. We'll, we'll go through a little trivia here on the movie first, just how it was made. Um, I don't know if people know this. It was written by Ron Shelton. A uh, very famous uh, writer of uh, several sports movies. He did White Men Can't Jump. He did Bull Durham. Did you actually hear how this movie came out and how it led to White Men Can't Jump? Did you hear about that? No, I, I'm not. I'm not aware of that fact. Okay, okay. So, so Ron Shelton was a sports writer, and he, you know, he wanted to write sports movies. And this was the first script he ever wrote, Blue Chips. And he was told, he's like, that story's not marketable. No one's going to see it. No one wants to see a movie about college sports, about ethics, about, you know, gambling, point shaving. The studio's like, that That won't work. No one's going to buy that movie. They said, but you know, there's a couple scenes in your script we really like. Especially, there's a scene at the start of the movie where Shaquille O'Neal is playing basketball one-on-one -on -one in this little broken-down gym in New Orleans. Just like, you know, gritty street ball and everyone's trash-talking each other. And the studio's like... We like that. We like that scene. So Ron Shelton took that scene and he turned that scene into another movie, which is basically White Man Can't Jump, which is uh, basically that Shaq scene built out over an entire movie. So Blue Chips technically came first and Blue Chips took 10 years to make. It went through development hell forever, but it did lead to White Man Can't Jump, which is a movie I've already featured on Staff Picks. There's so many great basketball movies in the 90s and we just we haven't had many of them as of late but you look at white men can't jump you look here at blue chips you look at uh above the rim is another one he got game is another one 
Ellie, which is a hilarious one with Whoopi Goldberg. Um, there's uh, Hoop Dreams, which is a great documentary, a very gritty documentary that was done. Basketball in the 90s as the NBA was blowing up uh, with Jordan and then with uh, just the marketing that NBC was doing for the game. It was like all of a sudden we all cared about basketball in maybe a way that that is almost singular to the 90s, I think, because we have not seen in the last 20 years or so a ton of basketball movies that have been made. Yeah, and I would argue that those movies are, if not great, at least they're all very watchable. And I, I don't think I've ever personally seen a bad basketball movie. And I've definitely seen bad other sports movies. Yeah, there's another there's another great one, Forget Paris, which is a, a rom-com with Billy Crystal where he plays an NBA referee. And what I loved about that movie is that when they shoot the NBA scenes, they went and got real NBA players. He's, he's out there with David Robinson, Muggsy Bogues, just again – it was like everybody knew, and, and credit the commissioner of the NBA, David Stern, in the 90s, basically saying, guys, we're going to market our product through film. And Hollywood and Hardwood came together uh, and, and just rinse and repeat. It worked great for a lot of these movies. And White Man Can't Jump is, a, is an amazing, amazing film. <laughs> you, you left out one that I actually just remembered. I saw this in the theater. That would be The Air up there with Kevin Bacon. Oh, Yes. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I went to see that one again. Kevin Bacon. You, uh, if you play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, that one is going to get you to a lot of different places. Um, uh, he plays a assistant basketball coach for St. John's University, I think, and he goes to what Africa to find Charles Gatunga Mina, uh, seven foot five. Uh, just a great, great, uh, great scene. A lot of fun. Uh, Kevin Bacon playing basketball with a broken knee. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that is the ultimate movie. If you ever needed to connect Charles Gatunga Mina to anybody in Hollywood, <laughs> so, that that movie's your secret weapon. That's your trump card. Okay, we're getting off the point here. Anyway, so yeah, there's a lot of good basketball movies out there. And this one, Blue Chips, absolutely a huge deal at the time. They had Shaquille O'Neal in here before he was really a big star. Uh, they had uh, Penny Hardaway in here before he was a big star. It's got a great cast. You got Nick Nolte who I believe was just coming off, uh, he was People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. And he was horrified by that title, by the way. He didn't like it at all. So Nick Nolte's like, you know, find me some roles. Get me something more gritty, right? I want to scream. I want to be ugly in a movie. So this is the movie that actually came out of that. I don't know if you knew that, uh, Paul. Uh, let's see. We got a great a bunch of great supporting actors in this movie. You got Lou Gossett Jr. You got Ed O'Neill. You got J.T. Walsh. I love J.T. Walsh. She's great. You got Mary McDonnell, another one of my favorites. Uh, she was in Dances with Wolves. Again, this movie's such a neat, neat little time capsule of the time period. Just a really big movie for its time, even though I believe it might have been a flop. Was this movie considered a flop? I forget. Yeah, I mean, just looking at... Um the world's greatest source of information, Wikipedia, which I know that we should never really cite, but apparently had a $35 million budget and only made $26 million at the box office. Now, have no idea what it did VHS-wise. Uh, I remember most of my friends had a copy of it at some point, and this was back in the time when, when VHS and then into DVD, probably two or three years later, maybe a little bit longer, um, where that accounted for a lot of actual revenue that movies were looking for. And obviously, I will tell you that I went to my local video store, Blockbuster, and would rent this movie quite a bit before uh, I actually saved up the money to buy my own copy of it. Yeah, yeah, okay. But again, big movie. This was a big movie for its time. 
And with that, I think we are ready to finally get into the plot. Although, okay, I do have to mention this. I have one more thing circled in my notes here. Uh, the director of this movie, William Friedkin, do you know what other movie he's affiliated with? William Friedkin, um, well, he did uh, The French Connection. Yeah, French Connection, that's definitely one of them. But he's got one other really, really big movie that... The uh, the Exorcist. Yeah, that's it, The Exorcist. So makes me realize the fun trivia fact is that the same director who made The Exorcist also made Blue Chips. And he did To Live and Die in L.A., which was kind of a real dark uh, film as well. But obviously, yeah, The Exorcist is uh, in The French Connection. He's But, but it, again, it just shows you, like what kind of movie did they think they were going to make here that you know you get uh, you get William Friedkin to say hey you know what i'm going to i'm going to do this one um and and you know again you put Nick Nolte and and down and out in Beverly Hills Nick Nolte you throw him in here and uh uh man what a again what a great cast okay okay one more last little trivia fact i i i feel bad i keep saying that but i really have one more of these fun little trivia notes i circled on my paper did you hear the quote from Shaquille O'Neal on what it was like to get him cast in this movie? No, what did he say? Okay, so Shaquille O'Neal, who's like the biggest college basketball star in the country, they pitch him to be in this movie. So Shaq shows up with his agent. He's got an agent already. He's got media personnel. He's got media people around him. And, and <laughs> Shaq's agent takes one look at this script and says, no, Shaquille will not do this. And Shaq's like, but I want to do this. I want to be in this movie. And the agent says, well, you have to change a couple things in the movie because Shaquille O'Neal does not say the word bitch. And Shaquille O'Neal cannot take money to play in college. That's not what we want his image to be. And Shaq is like, yeah, fuck that. I totally want to be in this movie because I do use the word bitch and I did get money to play in college. <laughs> and so anyway, I just, I heard that and I just thought that was funny. That's how we got Shaq in this movie. Yeah. I, at some point when, when we, after we go through the plot, we're going to, I'll, I'll bring up a good Shaquille O'Neal uh, sliding doors moment from this film. Okay, and with that, let's finally dive into the plot. And again, this is not an especially complicated plot, so I don't expect this to be a super long podcast. But uh, we start at a fictional university in Los Angeles named Western University. As Paul said, they're colored blue and yellow, probably supposed to be UCLA for the most part, I would imagine. And uh, the coach of Western University is named Coach Pete Bell, who is played by Nick Nolte. And uh, kind of explain Pete Bell's history here. Why would he be well-known at the time of this movie? Well, Pete Bell was a uh, was a college basketball coach who'd been a successful college basketball coach for a long time. Uh, you know, he'd won. I, they didn't call it the NCAA in this. They had kind of convoluted name for it because, uh, obviously, the NCAA didn't want anything to do with this movie. Um, but uh, he uh, he was a championship coach that a team that had fallen down on hard times. And... Uh, we pick up with him at the beginning where um, pr pretty good character development right off the bat. Right. You kind of see that he works the refs. He's a fiery guy. The fan base loves him, but they're also booing him because they're not winning. And uh, this great moment at the beginning where he just flips his lid on one of the referees and takes a basketball and punts it into the stands. And then we begin to learn a lot about him. Right. He's. He's got a failed marriage. They're still married. He goes to her house. It's just he's a very complicated individual, but but he's also not a complicated individual. He wants to win. He wants to win the right way. And he's now in a world where winning the right way is maybe not possible anymore. So uh, that's kind of where we are when we introduce ourselves to when we get introduced to Pete Bell. He's he's a guy who maybe 
was once ethical and is now realizing in order to be successful in a non-ethical world, he's got to bend his boundaries a little bit. Yeah, and there's two things you left out there in your good summary of uh, Coach Bell is that number one, he has never had a losing program ever. And this is a big deal. He's the one of the winningest coaches in, in college basketball history. And the other thing that's important about him, along with the never having a losing season, he is known for having the cleanest program in the country. Not a hint of scandal, nothing. He is Mr. Clean. There's a great scene really early. And this is like when I think about what draws me into a movie, it's conflict in a way. Um, and there's always a question of can you trust your narrator? And there's this great scene where he's in the locker room with his team at the end, at the beginning of the film, it's kind of the end of a basketball season. And he's, he's, they're, they're losing or they've had a losing record. And he, he says, you know, hang your heads guys or, or, or keep your heads up. We're winners. We're winners in here. And then it's an immediate jump cut to him being in the, the, the locker room or his, his office with his assistant coaches. And he says, we're absolutely a mediocre basketball team. How did we fall so far so fast? And I love that idea of he, he tells his players one thing and immediately you go behind the curtain and you hear something else. And so now it's, again, that's kind of that trusting of the narrator a little bit. He's our narrator through this in, in, in a way, uh, and not with voiceovers, but, um, this kind of taking us behind the curtain in a way that we never got to really see behind the curtain of college basketball before. It's such a powerful scene when he says to his assistants, we're an absolutely mediocre basketball team. How did this happen? And then his assistants start peppering him with like, hey, we lost this guy to a bag full of cash. We lost this guy to a phony job and a phony transcript. And, and he's sitting there and he's like, man, how did this happen? Okay, so let's set the scene here. So we open the movie with, it's the big game for Western against uh, one of their rivals, a fictional school, Texas Western, coached by, uh, oh, I guess at this point we should probably mention all the cameos in this movie, huh? It's amazing. It's just an amazing list of who's who in college basketball in 1993. Yeah, I'm going to say you might not get all that much out of this if you didn't grow up in the era and you don't really have any idea of what this era is or was at the time if you're watching it like in 2022 but man the cameos in this movie you're gonna you're gonna it's like the who's who like uh like paul said you're gonna see coach rick patino he's the one that coaches texas western here in the opening scene you're gonna see coach jerry tarkanian who was a big deal at unlv we're gonna get uh former nba star bob Cousy. we're gonna see uh larry bird i mean arguably one of the biggest players of all nba history of all time it's just it's just amazing and and the basketball scenes in this movie are so fun. And I have to say, the opening scene in this movie, it just will transport you right back to like 1994 college basketball game. I mean, everything is so perfect for that era. The music, the band, the pageantry. It's just 10 minutes to open this movie of nonstop 90s time capsule college basketball action. Well, it's great because they hired basketball players to become actors. You know, there's another movie that's that's obviously very resonant um, with the Olympics and and every four years we think about Miracle. In that film, they hired hockey players and taught them how to be actors. They didn't hire actors and teach them to be hockey players. So all of the basketball they did, I mean, our three main characters that we're eventually going to be introduced to in terms of basketball were all star basketball players. And and so when they when they said, "Hey guys, go out there and play," we're going to shoot this. And just play the way you would normally play, and we'll shoot around you. 
And I thought, and, and what a joy for Nick Nolte to be able to act mm-hmm. a, alongside this, right? I mean, Patino is just doing his thing, right? Um, but for Nick Nolte to kind of be immersed into a world that he's probably not all that familiar with and then just said, you act, they're going to play. What a great marriage. Yeah, and, and because of that, like you said, the basketball scenes in this movie, they are legit. These are probably the best basketball scenes ever featured in a movie, I would say. Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, certainly, certainly up there. I can't, I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm biased cause I love this movie. So yes. All right. And so after the game, Western loses and you know, coach Pete Bell is just furious. He cannot believe he lost. He's going to have a losing season. He kind of gets uh, chewed out a little by his athletic director played by Bob Cousy. We'll talk more about him later. And basically the athletic director says, you know, if we have a losing season, it's your job. It's my job. We're probably both gone. And so, like, there's a lot at stake here. It's just not going well for anybody. And then afterwards, Pete has to go out, and this is the worst part. He has to talk to the media that, you know, all the sports writers get to grill him about all the mistakes he made, about how much his team sucks. And uh, this is where we meet the head sports writer, played by Ed O'Neill, who cleverly <laughs> plays a sports writer named Ed. <laughs> not a big stretch of imagination here. Yeah, so uh, talk about this Ed scene, because I'd kind of forgotten that he was such a pivotal character in this movie. Well, again, he's 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 pressing, uh, he's pressing Pete Bell, and he's kind of doing what sports writers do, kind of holding the coach accountable. Of and and so he brings up, you know, that they're losing, but he also pivots to this conversation about a, a central player on the team, Tony. And whether or not anything had happened with him in terms of uh, of uh, shaving points or anything like that. And um, he's he's pushing on it. And there's some scenes that, you know, eventually where we hear from Ed O'Neill basically saying, you know, we we're going to get him. We're going to get the great Pete Bell. And I, I always struggle. This is always a tough one for me because I think a lot of times sports writers get kind of unfairly dinged a lot of times in movies. I don't think that there are a lot of great um, representations of sports writers in Hollywood. I think they always kind of look at the worst of what people do. I think of a movie like 61 that Billy Crystal did about Roger Maris and the sports writers and that are just annoying and you want to punch them in the face. And um, in this situation though, you know, he, he does kind of walk a pretty good line of, of, of saying, look, we, the team isn't doing well. Why? And is why maybe the well, you've got some drama in your in your house that you might not even know about. We know about it. We've heard about it. We're trying to prove it. And uh, they have a contentious back and forth right off the bat that you can tell clearly impacts Pete later on as he you know goes to see his, his kind of estranged wife and and he can't let it go. He can't get it out of his mind. Yeah, let's talk about that uh, point-shaving subplot in this movie. This is a big deal. So in the movie, it is mentioned by the sports writers that four years ago, Pete Bell's players or team was shaving points. And if you don't know what shaving points is, that's where you win a game, but you intentionally don't win by as many as you should because you're trying to beat the point spread in Vegas, that you're really working with gamblers, that you're trying to win money from people, which is really, really, really illegal in college basketball. That is highly discouraged. That should not be happening. And again, Pete Bell has the cleanest program in the country. He vehemently denies this. No way. Four years ago, I know you think my team shaved points. There's no proof. I've never done that. I never would. 
And he's telling the truth. Pete would never shave points. He just wouldn't. But unbeknownst to him, but knownst to us, I'm going to spoil it a little bit here. This indeed did happen four years ago. One of his star players, Tony, did take money from gamblers. He did shave points. We will find this out later in the movie. So stuff is happening under the covers that Pete doesn't know about. And this is going to become a big problem because it is happening, but he doesn't know it. He's still at this point living in a world of denial. And it's that that scene and and what you just described, again, does two things for us. One, it shows us that, yes, he does run the cleanest program, but maybe not everybody around him are the cleanest people. Mm -hmm. And so he brought in Tony, loved Tony. And there's this great scene where he goes back, he recruits somebody from Tony's old high school. And you can see that there's a real love in, and, and, you know, there's a couple of moments with Tony where you can just tell it's love. And I've been around enough college basketball teams in the last 20 years to know that there's a Tony on every team, a four-year guy who's been around, who just has a love of their coach and vice versa. I'm not saying there's a point shaver on every team. I'm saying that there is a Tony out there and, um, and who will go to the coach with real world conversations about, um, you know, is, is, is there's their partner, uh, pregnant or anything like that, or am I failing a class? And, 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 and a lot of things we see with Tony is a microcosm for, for what's out there. Pete Bell never believes that Tony would be capable of lying to him. You know, so it's, it's what college basketball coaches ask of their players is, is 100% honesty and integrity. And that's what he, the, what's, that's what Pete Bell asks for. And that's what he gives. And it's what he gave for so long, and he doesn't get it back from Tony. And it is a heartbreaking scene when you see that it comes to fruition. And again, that's jumping ahead a little bit in the movie, but the seeds are planted early on that the great Pete Bell, although he thinks he's running a clean house, maybe that house is not as clean as we all thought it was. Yeah, it's it's really funny because, again, I hadn't watched this movie in 30 years. And so I just remembered it being about basketball. And when I watched it again for staff picks, I'm like, this movie is a lot sadder than I remember it being. And it's like you said, the scenes where with Tony, they're the ones that really do it. When Coach Pete finally realizes that this kid he's taken under his wing and trained and mentored has betrayed him. And that's that's a really powerful and hard scene to watch, I think. Yeah, it's um, it, it, betray is such a powerful word, too. And. Again, there's a couple different scenes with with Tony um, that that we see the the genuine love, and then you see the genuine heartbreak. And the scene in the dorm room that we get to like, about midway through the film, when the world's kind of crashing around Pete eventually, and, and and it really comes to a head with uh, with finding out about Tony. Okay, I'm gonna fast forward through a little stuff here, some of the character development, just so we can get to the basketball part later. But anyway, we meet Pete, we meet his ex-wife, played by Mary McDonald. Again, if you've seen Dances with Wolves, she's in that. She's uh, stands with a fist. She's really good in that movie. I always love her. Um, let's see. In this movie, she plays his ex-wife, and she loves helping Pete out. She'll tutor the kid. She's like his assistant, kind of, even though they're not married. Although we've learned, obviously, Pete's a little much. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think we what we can tell early on is that is he never leaves work. He he comes home. You got to watch the game tape right away. He pours a drink. Um, you can tell they've had a playful relationship in their life at some point and that maybe, maybe it was exciting to be with a college basketball coach at one point, but, 
but Pete's never really grown up and she has. And I think you see the, the kind of fissure in their relationship there, but she has a heart of gold and really he does too. Uh, it's just misplaced when it comes to the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is the, the like the death spiral of coach Pete's coaching career. And even his wife says, you know, Pete, you just got to let it go. It's it eventually it all adds up. You got to take a break. It's too much pressure. And you see Pete still working with these kids, trying to get them to win that last game just so they don't have that losing season. Well, but we do have a fun scene here that I forgot about. I got to talk about this. The free throw shooting scene with Bob Cousy. This is a fun one. Oh, it's amazing. I'm I'm sure you did the research on this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Bob Cousy, one of the most famous NBA basketball players of all time, living legend of the NBA. For some reason, they tapped him into acting in a movie. And he plays the athletic director here over Coach Pete at Western. And we get a scene here in the movie where basically the athletic director, Bob Cousy, comes in, explains to Pete, you know, this might be our last year here. It's all over. What you have to do is get some better players, blah, blah, blah. Our our kids just aren't ready. They're not good enough for this level of basketball. And the hilarious thing about this scene is that Bob Cousy, again, real NBA player. He's like 75 years old. He's an old guy. I don't know. But anyway, he and Nick Nolte are talking about this. And throughout the whole scene, Bob Cousy is shooting free throws. And Nick Nolte is just kind of catching them and throwing them back to him as Bob Cousy's acting and delivering his lines. And it's hilarious because Bob Cousy doesn't miss an entire free throw in the entire scene. He nails like 12 in a row. He even hits one (laughs) left-handed to the point where Nick Nolte, apparently completely unscripted, just kind of says as an ad lib, he's like, geez, don't you ever miss one? And it's kind of funny if you know that, that it's all ad-libbed and Nolte's annoyed that this old guy is showing him up by not missing a shot. Well, and, and it's funny. So he throws in the first ad lib line and then, uh, you know, Bob Cousy fires back with put him in the hole. That's the name of the game. And then they keep acting the scene out. And, you know, Nick Nolte comes back again with miss one for Christ's sake, would you? And uh, it's just such a flex. It's such a flex from the athletic director. But it's also kind of a problematic scene that sets up the rest of the movie because, he Bob Cousy, who plays Vic Roker, the AD, basically says, I don't want to be involved. I don't want to know anything. I want plausible deniability. And now, as we talk about this is a movie, not about basketball, but a movie about ethics. Now the morality play starts. Now it's like Pete has basically just been told by his boss, I'm wiping my hands of this. You do whatever you need to do. And I'm not going to be involved. I don't want to know anything. And, uh, now we're going to find out how ethical Pete Bell is. Yep. So here we go. It's the great uh, back and forth tug of war over the soul of Pete Bell, where he knows he doesn't have the players to compete at the level he's used to. And he knows, you know, you're probably going to start paying kids under the table, giving them gifts, you know, ethical violations. That's the only way you're going to be able to recruit these kids away from the like the big schools like Duke or Indiana and stuff. But Pete doesn't want to do it. And he gives a great speech here. He says, you know, he tells his athletic director, there's two reasons I could never cheat. He's like, if I break the rules and I get caught, I'll get kicked out of basketball. And then he's asked, well, what's the second reason? And Pete says, well, you know, cause there's a chance I might not get caught. So Pete knows it would be really easy not to get caught. And it would be very tempting to go for it. And like you said, this is where we get uh, like the assistant coaches. They're even kind of saying, you know, we need to start paying these kids. We need to start giving gifts under the table. And Pete doesn't want to do it. You can see there's all these pressures around him. He resists for as long as it can, as he can, but then it finally is going to come to a head where I think uh, they just get absolutely destroyed in their last game of the year. They they lose by something like 40 points. 
and it's the worst loss in Western basketball history. And after that last loss, I think Pete is just basically like, F it. Okay, that's it. I don't care anymore. Let's just do it. There's, uh, first of all, the scene of Nick Nolte when he's saying that that line of, you know, if I get caught, I'm not going to coach anymore. And then he basically says, I might not get caught. The the Nick Nolte's got such a gravelly, great voice where he, he there's so much pain and layers in everything that he does when he uses that voice. And you just feel it. You feel the emotional struggle that he has when he says that. He's got a couple scenes in the movie where he kind of drops his voice an octave or two. And um, I've got a little bit of a theater background. And I just remember loving the, the, the he's not very expressive with his body. I mean, he is at times in this movie, but his voice just runs the gamut. And then, you know, you talk about the scene with the assistant coaches. I, I just, you know, they've got the old guy on this. Every staff's got an old guy. Every staff in college basketball has got the guy who's the seasoned guy who's kind of the voice of reason. And then you've got the kind of young up and coming assistants. And when they start talking about paying for players, it's the two younger up and coming assistants who are saying this. And then the old guy kind of puts his hands in his pockets and he very sternly says, I do not recommend under the table recruiting. That's a like Pandora's box you don't want to open. And uh, and it was just like you hear that and you're like, oh, that coach knows where the bodies are buried. He's seen some, <laughs> he's seen some things in his day. And uh, and I just I, I love that moment. I thought that was kind of just a fun. Again, there's so many different little just fun moments of like things that that I know today, having been around college basketball, everybody's got an old guy like that on the staff who's like, you know what? I've been to the circus. I know what it's like. And uh, it's just a good moment there. Yeah, I think the exact quote is, under the table recruiting is a personal hell you're inviting yourself into. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about Nick Nolte's acting because I saw a quote. I was just reading up on this movie where uh, Shaquille O'Neal was so impressed with okay now Shaq had never met another professional actor before and he's like Nick Nolte he's like you know you talk to Nick Nolte for half an hour he'd be a totally different totally normal guy and then the minute the camera starts rolling Nolte becomes Pete Bell like his posture changes his attitude changes his language and his voice everything changes and Shaquille O'Neal is like it was the most amazing thing I'd never seen such a thing before Nick Nolte is the best actor I've ever seen up personally up close now admittedly Shaquille O'Neal has not worked with Meryl Streep or anything, <laughs> but, but I do have to say Nick Nolte, you may not think of him as like a great actor, but like I read somewhere that to prepare for this movie, Nolte wrote a 200 page novel, which is like the backstory of Pete Bell getting into this, getting into this guy's life. Like Nick Nolte is a legitimate actor. He's really good in this. And that's what I keep reading and all of the things of all the interviews and backstory about this movie. Apparently he's amazing to work with. He's just brilliant, brilliant in every step of this movie. Yeah, and Nolte does have the one speech right here before they start breaking the rules where he's so upset because, you know, for years kids have been coming to our college because Western University is a thing. We're a name, we're a tradition. You know, for years, we didn't have to recruit kids. They'd come here at a tradition because this is just where you go. And now he's like, in the 90s, he's like, you know, no one gives a damn about that anymore. And he can just, he can, and, and Coach Pete just cannot get into that mindset. That, that it's not an honor to play for this school. And that's the big crux of the problem. I think you would agree with me here. The athletes in the 90s are gaining more power than the schools and the coaches. And that's a big problem. Of course, yeah. And 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 
and call it just the way that marketing was done. And it was the NBA effect. The NBA started looking for the next big star everywhere they went. You know, when Nike landed Jordan in the 80s, it was the search for the next Mike. And it wasn't the search necessarily for the next great basketball player. It was the search for the next great marketing machine. And so it became these college basketball players became almost bigger than the schools that they were going to go to. And for a lot of coaches, I think that was really difficult for them to struggle with. And I'm sure for Bobby Knight, it was hard. I'm sure for a lot of these guys. And I, you know, they, they encapsulate that a little bit with Pete Bell in that scene where like, look, tradition should be getting these guys here. And I'll tell you this, they do a scene where they bring the recruits to campus. They're walking them around campus. How would you not want to go there? I always think like, how would you not? The weather's beautiful. He says a scene, he throws his arms in the air and says, it's beautiful every day here. Why would you not want to be here? Amen. Sign me up for that. But again, I'm from the Midwest and I got 12 inches of snow on the ground right now. Yeah. And in the in the coach's defense, like you said, it would have been very hard to adjust to a scenario where the players are now the star of the team and not the team. In the coach's defense, I think they were right to be upset by that, to be honest, because that's not how a team sport should work. But then again, the reality of uh, how a team sport should work does not really match this big media machine and money machine coming in. So, like, I do have a lot of sympathy for the coaches in this era. I think they were right to be upset by this. Well, and this this also goes to, like, the time capsule part of this movie. Because if you tried to release Blue Chips today, the same exact movie, same exact script and everything, it would just feel like a relic of a time gone by. Because now, today, it's it's nobody goes to these schools for tradition anymore. Like, I, you know, there's... I even know at the level that Valpo, the school I cover, is at, that I've had some athletes tell me, oh, I'm here because it's a Nike school, because I like Nike clothes. So I, I only looked at schools that were Nike schools. Okay. That, it's just it's, it's fascinating how little stuff like that that doesn't matter to some means everything to others. And it's got very little to do with the name on the school anymore. Yeah, and I think that really ties into why this movie is such a valuable one to talk about on a show like Staff Picks, because it's absolutely such a time capsule that really only could have existed right then, about 93, 94. Anyway, okay, so so here we go. Let's go meet the blue chip recruits. These are the uh, titular blue chips that uh, Coach Bell is going to go out and recruit. Okay, so first off, he's going to go meet a recruiting advisor played by Robert Wool, who by law must be in all sports movies. So right there, Robert Wool narrows down the top recruits in the country for the coach and says, basically, it comes down to these two guys. They're these two guys, one guy in Chicago named Butch McRae, six foot eight shooting guard, absolutely future Michael Jordan. This kid will be a huge star. And then there's this white kid from Indiana, uh, from Paul's neck of the woods here, Ricky Rowe, six foot eight power forward, going to be the next Larry Bird. And basically, Robert Wall, the uh, advisor, says, you recruit these two guys, you will be in the final four every single year of basketball. In fact, you're in the final four next year. They are that good. And it's great that Robert Wall plays Marty, the kind of the the, the recruiting coordinator, or the, or the recruiting hype guy. Because it's a role that feels like Arliss, which doesn't come out for another couple of years. Mm -hmm. But it kind of feels like maybe Robert Wool was uh, throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing, um, hey, maybe I like to play around in this world a little bit here. And uh, and I just I really, really like that. Um, a very 90s scene where I think Robert Wool might have had one of those like uh, like big mobile phones. <laughs> um, it just kind of felt like. Uh, 
like a, a scene right out of the 90s. Again, they're going through magazines and all this stuff. And and this was big around that time. There were all these recruiting lists. The Internet wasn't around then. So there were a few trusted people that were out there that coaches would buy their list and they would know who to go after because they would spend all year coaching their teams in college. And then as soon as recruiting started, they had to go figure out, okay, who do we need to go see? Well, they would go to these recruiting coordinators and these guys would say, hey, here's the list. I love I love the line of, of, of cut the bottom eight names off your list. You get these two guys, you're in the final four next year. And then thus the recruiting of Butch and Ricky begins. Now let's talk about these recruiting scenes because these are some of my favorite scenes in the movie. And the first one is Butch McRae, played by Anthony Hardaway. Now, was he in college at the time? He wasn't in high school, right? He's got to be in college at this point, right? He was just coming out of college. He played at the at, at the University of Memphis, and then it was called Memphis State University. And he had just come out of uh, – he had a really good season. Kind of – I mean, they weren't really a Power 5 team as we think about them today. They weren't the Memphis that we think about today. Uh, he helped put them on the map, and then John Calipari later and Derrick Rose really kind of did that. But – but he was a, a one-man band at Memphis, and he was really, really, really good. And he was going to be going into the NBA. And and so they got him for this movie. He was not a big star by that point. They, you know, didn't really know uh, kind of who he was. Now, by the time this film comes out, uh, we know a lot more about him. Um, I mean, he was in the NBA by the time this movie came out. But when they shot the movie, I think he was preparing for the NBA draft, which now is almost unheard of, absurd to think that these guys would go do a movie shoot while they're preparing to get drafted in the NBA. Yeah, and I think I, I read somewhere that Anthony Hardaway, well, again, his name was Penny. If you don't know him, Penny, Penny Hardaway. But he was like a pretty good actor. And like the acting in this movie is not the strongest from the kids because like you said, they're basketball players being taught to act. But I think I read in some interviews that out of all the actors in the movie, Penny Hardaway was actually pretty good. He was actually pretty natural in most of his scenes with Nick Nolte. He was, he's really good. And he shows out of maybe all of them, the most layered as a, uh, as a player, I guess if, if, if we're going to talk specifically about Penny Hardaway in this moment, I think it's important to hit on this again, because we're just kind of talking about where these guys were in their life at this point. So Shaq is, uh, and we'll get to him and the character he plays in a second, he had already been drafted to the NBA and had played his first year with the Orlando Magic when this movie was shot. And the Orlando Magic end up winning the draft lottery the year again, the back-to-back number one pick. And that was crazy because uh, they they had a very, very slim chance to win the lottery, and they end up winning it. And Well, now Chris Webber is coming out from Michigan. Everyone's They're going to take Chris Webber. And now Shaq and Chris Webber are going to be the most dominant front line in the NBA. They're going to be excellent together. But Shaq and Penny Hardaway end up having a bond while making this movie. And Shaq goes to his, his crew in Orlando, the GM, the coach, and he says, I don't need to play with another big man. I am the big man. Get me Penny and we'll dominate this league. And so Orlando ends up taking Chris Webber. And then they trade him to Golden State for Penny Hardaway and some draft picks. And if this movie doesn't get made, Shaq and Chris Webber are playing together in the NBA. And who knows what that might have looked like. But because this movie gets made and the way it got made, when it got made, Shaq and Penny Hardaway end up coming together 
and two years later they take they take the Orlando Magic to the NBA Finals. Oh yeah, yeah, that's actually an excellent trivia fact. I'm glad you pointed that out. That this movie legitimately affected NBA history. I mean, w- without question, this is a, again, it's a huge sliding doors moment of like what what happens if this movie never gets made or Penny Hardaway doesn't get cast in this and they put they give somebody else that spot or or Shaq says, you know what, I don't say bitch and I don't I'm not taking money and he doesn't go in the movie um, or if or if there's a, a delay, then Shaq and Chris Weber are playing together and and who knows what that would have done for Orlando. Maybe that would have been great. Maybe maybe you get you know, a big free agent guard to come in with those two. I don't know. But as it was, the magic end up going to uh, end up going to the finals. And then also this movie Shaq gets a taste of Hollywood and ultimately moves to Hollywood and goes signs with the Lakers in a deal that the, the magic just never saw coming. Okay. Yeah. We'll get to Shaq in a second. Shaq is the big character in the movie. We'll get to him. But, yeah. So, sorry about that. So Penny, Penny Hardaway, he plays a guy named Butch McRae. And uh, Butch McRae, he's the king of Chicago basketball. We get a great scene of uh, Coach Bell going to recruit him in this little tiny Hoosiers-like gym in the middle of nowhere in the projects in Chicago. And Coach Bell sees this big six-foot-nine future Michael Jordan just dominating everybody in high school. And his eyes just light up. And this is where I talked about one of the things about the, the cameos in the movie is that there's a running joke in this movie that every time Coach Bell comes up to recruit a kid, he sees a whole cluster of all these other big college coaches at the time off to the side. And he just smiles and waves at these other coaches because they all go to recruit the same kids. So they all know each other. There's a great line where one of the coaches says, I don't know, Pete, I don't think he can play for you. And the coach fires back with, oh, but but or Pete fires back. Oh, but he can play for you, can he? Um, and I just like it when the, all the coaches are sitting in, in the office waiting to go talk to the to the to the principal of the school. Um, and Pete just walks right in because this is, again, the same high school that Tony came from. And you see, this is again, this is what happens even today. It's a relationship business. It's all a relationship business. And if you don't have these relationships, you're not getting in the door. And Pete Bell has these relationships with Father Dawkins, played by Lewis Gossett Jr., and he walks right in and skips the line of all these other coaches. Yeah, okay, well, this this is an interesting scene. I want to talk about this. So, yeah, like you said, Pete has a relationship with this school. He has a relationship with uh, his star Tony came from here. So Pete has a huge advantage over these other coaches who don't like seeing Pete here. They all want to get this kid for themselves. Now, we go out and we meet the principal, played by Lou Gossett Jr., and uh, Lou Gossett is not billed in this movie. He's not credited. Just one of my favorite actors from that era. And he comes out. And I love this scene because Lou Gossett, again, black man, sees all these white coaches waiting there to poach his top player. And the first thing Lou Gossett does is he starts talking about it like it's a slave auction. Yeah. Oh, what am I bid? Oh, who's going to bid for my boy? He's so strong. He can lift so much. Oh, what am I bid? So... He really understands how ridiculous this business is and that these, you know, these old white coaches, they're not here out of the goodness of their heart. They're here to buy someone. They're here to buy someone to come work on their plantation. And the principal is under no illusion that it's anything different. And I just love the way he approaches this scene. I mean, he he says a line, the boy can actually read and write. He can read and write. I mean... And it's it's an uncomfortable scene years later to watch. You know, at at 13, when I watched this movie, 
I it, it just kind of went in one ear and out the other. You watch it at 41 and especially in with a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the world today that we just kind of ignored for a long time. And man, it is a powerful scene uh, because he's he's telling a joke and he's not laughing, you know, like, I mean, it's it's a very real thing that he's saying and he does this and these coaches are, are and, and and I can't even imagine kind of like these coaches, maybe again, what's going through their mind is they're shooting the scene because I w- I guarantee that it, it's not a joke to them, right? Like, or maybe it is a joke to them. Maybe it is like, well, yeah, I mean, we want to, we're going to improve his life by taking him out of the projects. He finishes this rant. It kind of falls on, on, on deaf ears. And he looks at Nick Nolte and says, come on in Pete. And, but the way that he delivers that line is just like, I don't know why the rest of you guys are even here because if Pete wants them, he's going with Pete. Yeah. And I'll expand on that a little bit. Like you said, the coaches who are filming this are actual college coaches. And I think in their head, they totally disagree with the premise of the scene that this is like a slaver selling off a boy to some plantation. Like the coaches would say, no, we're giving this kid a chance at a better life. He'll get an education. He'll come out, you know, his life will improve. It'll help his family. He gets all this, all that, blah, blah, blah. But the principal knows, yeah, their lives may improve, but your lives as coaches will improve even more. So I really think this is personally the most underrated scene in the movie because of what you just said. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I, and, I, and again, it's it's one that on first, second or third watch, you might just gloss over. But then when you start peeling back the layers, which is why I love this podcast, is that it really allows you a chance to think, man, they're really they, they really put the scene in the movie and it, it probably was shot one way. But the impact of it is a whole completely different conversation. Yeah, it's great. And I wish we could talk about it more, but we got to keep going on in the movie. But anyway, this scene is great. And now we got to meet Butch's mother, played by Alfre Woodard. And uh, <laughs> Pete has learned, you know, the principal's like, you know, you can talk to me all you want. I'm telling you right now, you got to convince the kid's mom. The kid's mom is a pain in the ass. You got to convince her and she's going to eat you alive because she's smart. And <laughs> she knows how much her kid is worth. She's going to want $1,000 just for you to talk to her. And Pete's like, well, I don't do that. That's not how I, I recruit. We don't pay parents. And the, and uh, Lou Gossett just kind of laughs at him. He's like, yeah, I don't think that line works anymore. If you want to talk to this kid, you pay the mom. And so now we get the confrontation between Pete Bell and Alfred Woodard, who plays uh, Leveda. I think that's her name. And she just absolutely grills him. She is on top of everything. And she's, she's great in this movie. And this is... I mean, she's throwing 100 miles an hour. Uh, the looks on her face are just brilliant. It's a really good scene in the house where, um, and, and now you start to see maybe how difficult it is uh, or how much how, how thin a lines you have to walk as a college basketball coach with each of these recruiting scenes of you, you, you've got to tell the parents what they want to hear. So what religion are they? That's what religion you are. What food are they eating? That's your favorite food you've ever had. And it's uh, it's a lot of kind of theater that goes on in this point. And I really, I love the, he wants to explain to Butch what kind of offense they're going to run. And he starts getting all the kids, the nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters involved. And he gets grandma to come out of the kitchen and he uses a lamp and uh, as the basketball hoop and a pillow as the ball and and 
you see the look on Alfre Woodard's face. She is not impressed at all. She's just sitting there, cigarette hanging out of her mouth, just like, what is this crazy ass <laughs> white man doing in my house? Yeah, there's there's one line in particular that I like from the mom where Butch, the kid, is like, I don't know, coach. I don't know if I can handle college. My academics aren't that strong. And Pete's like, well, you know, we got a lot of athletes, you know, are taking classes and they're doing just fine, Butch. So I think you'll be fine in class. And the mom immediately jumps all over that. She's like, are you implying, Mr. Bell, that the classes are rigged for athletes? Which is such a great question. And it's something you can tell coach has never been asked before. And yeah, and he stammers through an answer and tries to, again, so much of recruiting is what, what do people want to hear? And I'll tell you this, and you know, I'm, I'm a college professor as well. And, and a lot of times we'll give tours and visit days. And, and when they ask a question and you got to think on your feet, I mean, you can tell you, you, you're not lying to them, but you tell them, you know, like, you know, so one of the things the school I teach at, it's 45 minutes from Chicago. And so people ask, are, are you close to Chicago? Well, yeah, if you're from L.A., we're really close to Chicago. <laughs> and so you might want to be really you might want to be at a school. that's really close to a big city. But then maybe you've got mom or dad who's like, I don't want my kid anywhere near Chicago. So then you're like, no, it's like it's not even in the same state. It's it's far away. And uh, and so it's just it's so much of that. And you see Pete doing that. It's just little things like that, that that brings so much authenticity to this film. I love it. Okay, and now the mom is going to turn up the screws. Now, we talked about Leveda. She's all over this. She knows exactly how this is going to work. And Pete's been warned, to be fair. So the mom takes him for a walk, and she literally just lays out her demands. She's like, I want a new job. I want a new car. I want to move my family out of the projects. This is what we want. If you want my son to go to your school, this is what we want. And Pete tries to reason with her. And I love this scene because this is such a nuanced scene. He's talking reason to her, but she talks reason right back to him. He's like, do you really want your son to start off college breaking the rules? Like, is that really the lesson you want to teach? If he starts off his college career this way, what's he going to become? And she looks him right in the eye and says, he's going to become a millionaire. And that's the thing. She's correct. And he's correct, too. Nobody is actually wrong in this scene. Yeah, it's I mean, it's great. And and I think in that moment. Pete starts to think, huh, maybe there's something to this. He's he's not a fan of it, but he's starting to realize. And, and, and I love the fact that they have this scene while they're walking around the projects, basically. And what we learn now is that basketball and the skill that Butch has allows him the opportunity to get out of the projects, would get his family out of the projects. And why shouldn't? he be able to parlay his skill into something like that. And as Pete is, is kind of given the sales pitch of what coaches have been saying for years, I think he starts to realize maybe the duality of what's going on a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. He's starting to see it from the mom's point of view. And she flat out says the line that you quoted earlier. Uh, he says, you know, this is against the rules. And she's like, well, I don't really care, Mr. Bell, because these aren't my rules. I just want to get my family out of the projects. And then she points out again, you know, a foul is not a foul, Mr. Bell, until the ref blows the whistle. And I think that's the last line. That's the great line. And you can see he's kind of getting run over here. Like he never would have listened to this pitch in the past, but he's starting to realize that, you know, practicality wise, he might have to. 
It's a great, it's a great scene. And again, Alfre Woodard, like how they landed her in this, in this role. And maybe she's not necessarily the superstar at that point in her career that she ended up being, but what, it's just a great, great movie, a great, great film for her to be in there. Yeah. Again, and I back up what I said back at the start, every single supporting role in this movie is really well done. And it makes the movie more poignant than perhaps it had any right to be. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, so we meet Butch. Butch is going to end up coming to Western under Pete Bell because Pete will eventually pay the demands. But now we got to get to the second recruit. And this will be fun for you, Paul, because this is an Indiana boy. This is your buddy here, Ricky Rowe, six foot eight, white power forward from French Lick, Indiana. Now, anybody who knows anything about basketball history has probably heard of French Lick before. So I will give it to my Indiana friend here to explain the significance of this scene. Well, that's where the great Larry Bird is from. And, uh, and, 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 and there's, I mean, you, when you talk about Hoosiers, Ricky Rowe feels like a guy who could have been in Hoosiers, right? Like feels like a guy who could, I mean, just farm boy right off the tractor, a broken down tractor, mind you, right off the tractor. And he's just, He's really good at basketball because everybody that lives in Indiana is really good at basketball because they've grown up eating, drinking, breathing, sleeping basketball. And Larry Bird's a big part of that. I mean, it goes back before Larry Bird, but Larry Bird is a product of that, too. Everybody, when they grow up, they do their farm work in the morning. They go to school. When they come home, they shoot on the hoop that's tight, that's on the back of their farmhouse. And Ricky Rowe is no different. Now, Ricky Rowe in the film is from French Lick, Indiana. Matt Nover, the actor that plays him, is from Chesterton, Indiana, which is the next town over from where I live. And uh, obviously, I'm thrilled to be a special guest here on Staff Picks talking about this movie. During the pandemic, um, I have my own podcast I do where I talk about Valpo basketball, and there wasn't a lot of stuff going on. And Matt Nover, who played Ricky Rowe, lives close to the area. And through a guy who's actually an extra in Blue Chips, I reached out to Matt and I wanted to try to just have him on to kind of do kind of what we're doing, you know, chew the fat about this movie. And I reached out to him a couple of different times and I could never I could never get a response. And maybe it was just that was a chapter of his life that's over with and done with or whatever. But but Matt Nover uh, had just finished a basketball career at Indiana University and he ended up shooting this movie. And then he had a great professional career overseas, played all over the place. Um, but Matt Nover, again, perfect, perfect casting for this this role as Ricky Rowe. Yeah, there's something I wanted to say about that. I'm glad you gave me that history. And that's uh, that Ricky Rowe is really good in this movie. He's a very good character, very acted, well acted, very believable. His basketball scenes look realistic. They pass the eye test. But I remember reading some criticism of this movie, and that was that Penny Hardaway and Shaq are big names, of course. So they were a big draw. They drew people into the movie. And this Matt Nover guy was a nobody at the time. So I saw a lot of people complaining that if maybe they'd gotten a bigger name for that third role or for Ricky Rowe, maybe this movie would have done better in the theaters. Now, that's just something I wanted to throw out there. This was definitely some contemporary criticism of this movie at the time, that they could have picked a bigger name for him. Yeah, no, I, you know, I don't disagree. I mean, the guy, uh, you know, he was kind of, uh, he, he went undrafted in the 1993 NBA draft, but then he went and had a 16 year playing career. And uh, I mean, he's just a good basketball player, kind of a good glue guy. He's a shooter. You put him out there, he's going to knock down shots. And he doesn't have the pizzazz of Hardaway 
or Shaq. And I don't know who around this time you get to put in there other than maybe Christian Leitner. And if you put Christian Leitner in the movie, who would have been the kind of the, 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 the typical white college guy at the time, you know, does he overshadow some of the other stuff too? Cause he was such a polarizing figure. I mean, there's literally, they made a documentary called I hate Christian Leitner, um, which is brilliant, but um you know, I'm partial to, to Matt just because, you know, the connection of, of, of living around here. And he's so good acting in the movie. He's just so excellent. Okay, two things here is that we, we legitimately get a Larry Bird cameo in this movie, which I love. Pete Bell just drives to French Lick, drives right up to Larry Bird Avenue or whatever. And apparently they're old buddies. And this is to speak to the prestige of Pete Bell over the years. He can just drive right up to Larry Bird's house unannounced and they just start talking. And he tries to get Larry Bird's help to recruit Ricky Rowe, blah, blah, blah. So we go to Ricky Rowe's farm. And, you know, this is uh, Ricky's just a typical hayseed kid. No business savvy. Doesn't even want to go to college, probably just wants to work on his farm and play basketball. Totally not savvy in the ways of basketball and marketing the way that uh, Butch would have been over in Chicago. But now we meet a new character. Now we meet Ricky's father. And Ricky's father is not naive about this process at all. And I think Coach Pete is a little surprised here that, uh, you know, the, even the old hayseed farmer in Indiana knows exactly how recruiting works, knows exactly how much his son is worth. And this is another fun scene here. Well, and it's just he, he lays it out and it's not even I mean, there's there's no shame in it at all. He goes, you know, I got all these coaches coming out here talking about do I need this or do I need that? And then he's like, I could tell you that tractor over there. Um, and and it's just like he has no qualms about laying out exactly what he wants. And so Pete, having been through this with Butch already and Leveda says, so is that what you're saying? Someone's going to give you a tractor? And and Ricky's dad just basically says, yep, that's what I'm saying. And it's like like so matter of fact, right? This is toxic. This is vinegar off the tongue to Pete Bell's ears, what he's hearing. And Ricky's dad is like, yep, that's what I'm saying. It's, that's what's going to happen. It's And it's like, it's absurd that it wouldn't happen in his mind. And then another amazing, amazing part of the movie when they start talking about religion. And uh, and, and Ricky's dad says uh, uh, something, I, and I'm going to get the quote wrong and I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm not even going to try to say it. But basically, it's talking about what kind of Baptist are you. And um, and you see this, like, lump in the throat that if Pete Bell gets this wrong, um, you know, it, it, it's it's going to torpedo the whole thing. And early on, it, part of this is the introduction um, when he says, hey, you can call me Pete. And he's like, I'm going to call you Coach Bell if it's all the same to you. And then at the end, when Pete gets the, the question right about what kind of Baptist he is, the guy says, well, all right, Pete. And it's just this great delivery of like, okay, I'm going to give you my son because you're a religious man like I am. And you're going to give me a tractor. And and we've just, we've, we've shook on it and handshakes are stronger than Oak to borrow a line from another great 90s sports movie, Jerry Maguire. Um, It's just a great, it's just a great scene between Pete and, uh, and Ricky's dad, who is actually credited, I believe, as Ricky's dad. They don't even they don't even need to give him a name. He's just he's a he serves a single purpose and he gets it done. And uh, and now we know that you got to give a tractor in order to get Ricky Rowe. You have to be the right religion and you got to give a tractor. 
Now, luckily for my listeners, I actually wrote down that quote, word for word, the one that you didn't want to try. So anyway, here we go. This is this is a great little exchange. So the dad is like, well, you know, I'm only going to let him go to a coach who's a church going type. And Pete's like, are you kidding me? I was raised Baptist. And then again, it's funny because to Leveda earlier, he said, you know what? I was raised Catholic. So he's always whatever the parents are. That's what he is. So anyway, uh, so Pete says, you know, for what it's worth, Mr. Rowe, I was raised Baptist. And the dad just looks at him and says, first Baptist or Southern Baptist. And again, like Paul said, you can see the terror in Pete's eyes. His entire program hinges on this question. And Pete says very confidently or guesses very confidently. Well, I was first Baptist, of course. And the dad's like, all right, good. Because we don't think very good about them Southern Baptists around here, if you catch my meaning. It's so, it's so good. It's so, so good. Now, there's one other thing that comes up here in the discussion with Ricky. And this is, again, really important that there's uncomfortable truths being laid out in this movie. Like, you know, when Butch's principal out in Chicago treats this whole thing like a slave auction, selling his boys off to the top plantation for the most money. Now, that kind of thing is going to come up again here in the conversation with Ricky. And I kind of forgot this was in the movie till I saw it again, where Ricky Rowe, well, maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed, has been trained very handily on this by his father. And later when Ricky starts negotiating his price, he's going to say, you know, here's the way I look at it, coach. I'm a white star. You're going to need white stars on your team, which again, a very unfortunate truth, but probably a truth. But Ricky, but Ricky knows that it's, it's money in the bank to have a white star on your team at this level. So again, a very uncomfortable truth about college basketball being laid out in this movie. Yeah, the line when he says, I just figure a white, young, blue chip athlete like myself deserves a little something extra. And then just kind of like, again, this kind of fun where he says, uh, you know, just put it in one of those, I don't know, one of those little duffel bags you guys all have. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, those, those that's, that's what I'm asking. Those are my demands. And and again, it, there's such an innocence to his tone of voice when he delivers that line as in like, and, and, and then, then he says something like, well, if you, I mean, if, if, if you agree to that, then, then I'm, then I'm all yours, then I'm, then I'm coming. And uh, well, you know, the reaction that Pete Bell has in that moment is, is when he really realizes now that not only is he the one that has to make a decision whether or not he's going to break the rules, but that everybody else is in on it, that everybody else expects him to do this. And he loses his mind. Okay, we'll get to that, but let's get to Shaq here. So th this is a big deal. So we've got our first two recruits. We got Butch, we got Ricky, the future Michael Jordan, the future Larry Bird. Now we'll go to the big man who I kind of forgot about this until I watched this movie again. This kid doesn't show up on any recruiting films. No one has heard of this giant seven foot four basketball legend in New Orleans named Neon Boudot. And Nick Nolte, our coach, only hears about him because of a tip. Apparently, Coach Pete has got some buddy named Slick who works in a bar who's like his ears on the ground in the world of college basketball. And Slick tells him, you know, there's this kid down in New Orleans named Neon Boudot. Nobody knows about him. He played in the Army. He was overseas. He grew like eight inches in a year. He is massive. He dominates basketball. But he's never been coached. Completely unpolished. And he tells Coach Pete, you get this kid into a good program you have the best player in the world. And like Coach Pete's eyes light up. Really? 
And like, because no one knows about this kid. And so now we go to recruit the big star of the movie, Neon. It's uh, it's so great. The, everything that he has to go through to get to Neon um, is actually a kind of a fun callback of uh, of a, a film that came out a year earlier, about 10 months earlier, Jurassic Park, where the lawyer is to in order to get to where they're uncovering the latest, um, you know, fossils with uh, with the dinosaur DNA in it. He's got to kind of go through the woods and kind of take a take a boat and like a it, it's just he's got to go through a long journey to get to the payoff. And in the same way, uh, Nick Nolte's got to do the same thing. Pete Bell's got to do the same thing. So Slick is basically saying, look, you, you, you can't just go to this guy's house. You know, it's like you've got to go through the woods and you've got to go through the river and you've got to go through this. And, and it's just it's amazing. And this is a, this was a big deal. This is how it was done in the 90s. Obviously, we saw the air up there. Another film, you know, going to Africa, trying to find somebody. Valparaiso, the program that I cover, they made their money. Uh, you know, they, they were very successful in the late 90s because or the mid 90s, mid to late 90s, because they tapped into Europe. And one of the things they always said, this is obviously right when the Internet was taking off. So everybody over there knew about the NCAA, but nobody knew the difference between a small school like Valparaiso and a big school like Duke. So all you had to go over to Europe and tell these guys, look, we, we play in the same league as Duke. And these guys got excited and Valpo landed all these guys they had no business getting. And so that was how recruiting was done in the 90s. And so now this idea of like, if you can find a diamond in the rough like Neon or like some of these guys that were hidden all over the place, it would never happen today. Never. These guys would be on a list by the time they were eight years old. Neon didn't wasn't on that list. Slick finds out about him, passes him over to Pete Bell. I think there's a line that basically says, I know you're hurting and I know that my guy will get playing time right away. Every college program's got a guy like Slick out there. It's got a guy that knows a guy that knows a guy that can get you in touch with another guy. And Slick is that guy in this movie. And that's how Neon ends up with Western Okay, so let's go meet Shaq. Now, I don't I don't think I'm hurting anybody's feelings by saying perhaps the worst actor in this movie, not especially <laughs> realistic, but again, he's Shaquille O'Neal. He's got a big smile, seven foot four, kind of gentle giant. The first scene we see with him, he's in this dingy old New Orleans warehouse, like playing basketball with a bunch of locals. And Pete Bell just walks into this warehouse and it's like everyone's just standing around and cheering for Neon. And Pete's like, Oh my God, who is this guy? He's this huge force of nature. And then Pete talks to him afterwards. And of course, Shaq struggling with his lines. Although in his defense, Shaq is playing a character who got a 520 SAT. So he's not a bright person. And this is going to be a huge plot point because you need a 700 SAT to get into college. And Neon got a 520. So this might be a bit of a problem. One of the great lines is, 520, they give you 600 just for getting your name right. Well, that's what happened. Spelled his name wrong. Such a great line. You know, and they try to soften that up in the screenplay. They try to make it so Neon is not that stupid. He goes at one point, he says, well, you know, I, I tanked the SAT on purpose because it was culturally biased, which I don't personally believe the character Neon would have ever heard the term culturally biased when it comes to the SAT. But in terms of the screenplay, you know, they're trying to soften it so you like him more. Can, I, I want to bring up a point, too, about something here that, um, again, I, I, I don't have a problem saying this. I'm a white guy from Milwaukee who who didn't know a lot about the outside forces of the world when I was a young kid. 
And so there's this movie where Shaq is hinting at how this stuff's kind of culturally biased a little bit. And we see it in the classroom scene a little bit later on where he kind of pushes back on, on why aren't we studying African literature? And there's another, I mean, amazing movie, one of the greats, Boys in the Hood, uh, that came out two years earlier where Lawrence Fishburne talks about the SAT and says, you know, it's the only part, you know, it's, it's, it's culturally biased. The only part that's universal is the math. And he gives this entire scene kind of talking about that. And for a guy like myself, I was like, wait a minute, maybe the world's not the way that it's packaged to me. It's different for everybody. And I just remember, you know, it's this, this two silly moments, certainly not Boys in the Hood silly, but but in it's a funny joke line in, in Blue Chips. But, God, it's so poignant. Um, and I, I kind of like what what they're trying to say in, in, in this, especially on the heels of what we saw in Boys in the Hood two years earlier. Oh, I 100 percent agree with you. I'm not arguing that the SAT is not culturally biased. I just disagree that Neon would know that and would use that as his opening line to Coach Pete Bell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So Neon is just this charming giant of a man. In fact, I read somewhere that they, they made Shaquille O'Neal. They made specific shoes for him that were like some kind of foam. And it's because they didn't want him to loom over the other actors. So even though he's massive in this movie, his shoes are, are actually shrinking him. He's actually bigger in real life than he appears in this movie because they wanted him to be closer in height to uh, Penny Hardaway and to Ricky Rowe. Although there's a great scene later on where they have uh, they have to get tutoring for Neon. So they take him to a kindergarten or a first grade class. And this is where Pete's wife kind of tutors him. And she's like, no, I don't want to tutor Neon. I don't want to tutor any of these basketball players. But she eventually gets won over because Neon is super charming. And she's like, I won't do it for you, Pete, but I'll do it for him. I'll tutor Neon for Neon. And we get this really cute shot of Shaq holding up and playing with these little first graders, which is hilarious because they look like little basketballs in his hand. He's so much larger than them. It's funny. It, it humanizes Shaq. It shows it's just a lot of layers, right? Like for a movie that is so kind of, you know, simple, there's a lot of layers to this. And, and I, I love the humanization of Shaq. And not only the, I mean, I should say the humanization of Neon Badeau, but also the humanization of Shaq. I mean, this, this just comes across again as a, uh, as a great vehicle for him to really turn into a marketable star. Yeah, he's a terrible actor, but it doesn't matter because he's got charisma and charisma really helps. Absolutely. Okay, so here we go. He's got his three blue chip recruits. He's got Ricky, Butch, and Neon. And now we get a scene of him taking them to Los Angeles for the first time, which... Again, as an Indiana person, this scene must be like crack to you looking at the sunshine. It's like 95 degrees in February. There are girls in bikinis all over campus laying out and sunbathing. And I will say this, being from Los Angeles, it actually is like that. That's not exaggerated at all in this movie. That's exactly what college is like in Southern California. Again, I don't know how UCLA and Stanford and, and Cal Berkeley, I don't know how they get, don't get the best players every single year. <laughs> Just for the weather, the weather alone. My brother, my brother went to Dartmouth out in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, which yeah. most people don't know. That's where the U.S. Arctic Research Station is located in Hanover. So that's how cold it gets out in New Hampshire. <laughs> and one time my brother, they had a uh, study abroad program, like an exchange program, where students at Dartmouth got to do a semester out at Santa Barbara, at UC Santa Barbara in California, right on the beach. And my brother's like, you know... The academics are nowhere near. It's like not even close to the same school as Dartmouth. But God damn it, that was the greatest semester of my life. One semester in California makes up for three and a half years in New Hampshire. 
And so when my girlfriend went to Cornell and uh, the uh, the snow there is 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 uh, historic. We'll just put it that way. Yeah. So in essence, what Paul is saying is the truth. A visit to a Los Angeles or California campus will sell you on that school instantly. And I will say personally, if you've ever been to Pepperdine University, that is the most beautiful campus I have ever seen in my life. It's on a huge hill in Malibu overlooking the Pacific Ocean, surrounded by like movie star houses and celebrities and nothing else. It is absolutely the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life. And I am shocked that I didn't go there, even after I visited that campus. And, and this is why I wonder how the University of Kentucky or Duke University in Lexington, Kentucky or Durham, North Carolina, have become the epicenter of college basketball <laughs> when Pepperdine should be where it's at. Let's let's go. Let's go ride the wave at Pepperdine. Yeah. How many duffel bags of cash are they throwing around at Duke nowadays? Oh, I'm sorry. Allegedly. 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 <laughs> okay. Anyway, so the kids see the college campus for the first time. They get their names announced at the arenas, the, you know, as if they're playing at the big game. And these kids are sold instantly. They want to go here. They want to go to Western. And this is the point now in the movie where the ethics are going to start turning really shady. So we're about an hour and a half into this podcast. I'm hoping to finish this by two, so I might skim over this a little bit just so we can get to the ending. But this is where we're going to meet someone who's really significant to this movie. The leader of the boosters, the friends of the program. You know him. You'll love him. If you've seen any movie in the late 80s, early 90s, he always plays a scummy villain. He's a scummy villain in this one, too. Here comes J.T. Walsh as a character named Happy. He's great. He is everything that this character needs to be he's opulent you know he's got he he's good we catch him lounging by the pool um you know in his mansion the there's a scene with every scene is over the top with him there's a scene where he walks into a restaurant not with one woman but with two women it's just everything with him it's like wish fulfillment and it's like if you get on the happy train you get to have all these things. And he is dialed up at every turn of this movie. God, he had to have so much fun shooting this. Just the way that what he was able to do, it, 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 it's great. There's every scene he's in, he's, it's a one-note performance. His job every time he's out there is to make you think, I'm going to sell whatever this guy's buying. I'm going to take whatever this guy's giving. And you see that Pete Bell has absolute disdain for this guy and hates the fact that this is the kind of clown that he has to go through. And But he also knows that he can't do it without him. And there's there's inferences to the football program and how they're, they've all come about and how happy bought this guy and that guy. And Pete resents it all, but knows that it's the price of doing business. The scenes with those two are are brilliant. Yeah, Happy is like a devil on his shoulder, whispering into his ear. He's like, you know, Pete, I'm the rich booster. I have all this money. I have all these connections. Just tell me the word. Snap your fingers. I'll go recruit all these kids for you. I will get them whatever they want. And then he even reiterates, you know, my money is untraceable. I'm a professional, Pete. No one can catch me. My money has been laundered so many times. It's so clean. Nobody could ever catch me. And again, like Paul said, Coach Pete Bell knows Happy. They have a long, contentious relationship. You get the sense they've hated each other for years. But Happy realizes Pete is kind of vulnerable at the moment. 
Like Pete actually may be receptive to this argument for the first time ever. And there's a couple of great lines here where, again, I pointed out earlier that there's not really a villain in this movie. And you could argue that, you know, Happy is, Happy isn't the villain, but Happy makes some really good arguments. In fact, he says right here, he's like, you know, these kids, they generate millions of dollars for our school. They make so much money for us. And all we do is exploit them. They get nothing. These kids get jack shit. And that's the problem. We should be helping them out for all the hard work they're, you know, putting into our program. Which, as much as you hate Happy as a person and as a character, his argument is correct. He really is right when he says this. I mean, we we may look at him. Some people may look at him as the villain. Other people might think of him as the as the white light in this movie, right? Like as the guy who's really advocating for the for the athletes. Yeah, and he even couches it in terms that the coach will understand. He's like, you know, coach, the athletes aren't the only ones who succeed when our team is good. You know, you get a new contract, you get a new shoe deal, you get your own TV show. You know, you get your mortgage paid. You, with that, you can support your ex-wife. This is perfect for you. Like. There's no downside to recruiting these kids into our team and making us historically good again. So Happy knows exactly what to say. He knows how to hit Pete right in those weak spots. And you're right. Again, Happy knows every note to play and he, he gets Pete. And and ultimately, there's, you know, there's the, the big moment where Pete's got to make the call and you can tell that he hates doing it. You can tell that he hates giving up the control but he also and he does it again. He goes to that lower octave voice where he says, uh, "You just kind of." He can't even say the words out loud. He doesn't even want to break a, a decibel level when he when he says them. That you know, okay, let's do it. And um, and he looks miserable, but now he knows it's going to be done, and he knows he's going to get his guys. Yep. And Happy finishes with the ultimate closers line. He's like, "You know, Coach, we owe them this money." And I think that's it. Although it's going to be a little bit of a struggle because we still have the scene here where Ricky Rowe comes to the coach. And this is where he literally demands a duffel bag full of cash, right? That's right. Yeah. And again, that's a powerful one, too, because these, you know, was this the one is, is Pete uh, is Pete in the towel at this point? Um, I, I just trying to remember one of the scenes and, you know, they're, they're all happy in the locker room. They're all excited because because you know, things are going to be good, and then Ricky flips it on him. And again, that's we alluded to this earlier, and I know I jumped ahead a bit, but it's one of my favorite scenes where where Ricky just again like you know he's his father's son. He's no non he's so nonchalant about it. Like hey, you know this this is what I want. This is what I think I should get. I've gotten this from other places. You give it to me now. I'm I'm yours. Yeah, and that's the line right there. Like Pete doesn't want to do it. That, but Ricky says, you know, I'm a white blue chip athlete coach. I should get $30,000 in a duffel bag untraceable. I should get a new tractor. And Pete does not want to do this. But then Ricky hits him with the logic. He's like, you know, I've already got the same deal from other schools. All you have to do is match their deal and I'm yours. And I think this is the hard part. This is this comes back to it. I think Butch, I think Neon, I think Ricky, I think all three of these guys understand that it was just basketball. Absolutely. They're coming to play for one of the greatest college basketball coaches ever in Pete Bell. And they want to be there, but they only want to be there if if they're going to make the deals proper for their families. And and so, again, Ricky's like, hey, look, man, I want to be here, but I got to do this for my family and I got to do this for myself. And if you match it, I'm yours. And I love that line. If you match it, I'm yours. 
Yeah, and Pete will eventually match it. He's going to go to Happy, you know, suck up all of his pride and all of his dignity. He's going to go to Happy, groveling with his hat in his hands. And he's like, you know, I really could use your help. Please help me recruit these kids. And it's really going to go all downhill from here. And you're going to see everyone start pulling themselves away from Pete the moment this starts happening. Like the athletic director, Bob Cousy, is going to say, you know, you got to do what you got to do, but I got my own career to think about, so I don't want to know about it. And he starts backing away, and everyone's going to back away, but Pete's going to go for it. He's going to, you know, return this franchise to prominence. And from here on out, the all you see is just a big montage of basically the kids getting all their stuff. You get, uh, you know, Butch's mom gets her new house, her new job, her new, her, they get to move out of the projects. Ricky's dad gets a new tractor. We get a duffel bag of cash. They just throw to Ricky one day at his front door. Uh, at one point, one of the boosters just drives up and gives Neon his new car in New Orleans. And he, even though in Neon's defense, he never did ask for it. He says that repeatedly in the movie. He's like, I never asked for anything. They just gave me a car. But anyway, yeah, it's all going to go downhill from here. Okay, no, it's going to go uphill real fast and then downhill even faster. Yeah, and and I actually lo- I love the fact this is another kind of just a little hidden gem in here that Neon never asked for anything. So what you see there is that that Pete is a good recruiter. He can get the big he can get the blue chip prospect with without having to sell him. Now he gets his wife Jenny to help tutor Neon, and we we get we got through all that. But he didn't have to give Neon anything in order to get him to come play at the school. Now maybe Neon needed to know he had Butch and Ricky coming to be his teammates, but but you see in a way that they didn't have to sell Neon. And so Pete Pete can do this. It's just if he's going to do it all the way to get the program back to respectability, he's got to get the other two guys. And so if they're going to give those guys something, and this is a real thing now, and this is something with this name image likeness, we wonder like what's it going to do to the locker room? What if one guy's getting this deal with this restaurant, another guy's got a car dealership over here, and now I'm I'm the star of the team and I haven't gotten any deals? What's that going to do in the locker room? So they got to give Neon something, and so they try to give him a car, and he goes, "What's this, man? I didn't ask for this." And the guy just says, "Friends of the program," and gets out of the car and walks away. And I, I was like, "I don't know where that guy's walking to. <laughs> I, I want I want a separate ten episode Netflix series of where that guy's walking to." Um, he just drives up to Neon's neighborhood, gets out of the car, and just starts going for a walk somewhere. Like, where's that guy going? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here we go, basically, the end of the movie here. I'm going to wrap it up pretty quickly just so we can get to the ethics discussion at the end. But the reporter, Ed O'Neill, he's like, you know, I don't know how we got all these recruits all at once, all these blue chips. And this reporter's determined to catch Pete Bell for doing something unethical. So we got the sports writer on his tail. We got his ex-wife, Mary McDonald. She's basically like, wow, you got all these recruits this year. Good job. And Pete's like, yeah, you know, I was great. And she's like, you did it the right way, right? You didn't bend any corners. And he flat out looks her in the eye and promises. Yeah, of course I did it ethically. And so everywhere, everything's going really good at the start. You know, happy, the friends of the program, they're happy. Everything's good. The wife is happy. The sports writer hasn't found out anything about uh, any ethical violations being committed here. And we get all this great basketball footage of these three kids practicing with the team. And they're just amazing. And this this team is just going to be amazing. And so things are looking really good for Coach Pete in the program for a while until we get the first chink in the armor. This is where a couple days into practice, their big new star, their big new Michael Jordan, Butch, Butch wants to quit. He doesn't like the team. He doesn't like college. He just isn't having a good time here. 
And this is going to lead to some huge ethical problems that Pete may have not anticipated, such as if Butch quits the team, what happens to the deal between the friend, friends of the program and Butch's mom? Does she lose the house if he leaves the team? And, you know, it, this is real, too. This is this is the thing about recruiting is as a coach, you tell these guys how much you love them at every turn. We love you. We need you to do this. We need you to do that. We need you to do everything. And then once you show up and once you're enrolled, now it's, hey, your jumper's not that good. You don't hustle on defense. You don't do this well. And it's like you build them up so you can knock them down so you can build them back up. And Butch has maybe never been knocked down before. And 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 there's a couple of good scenes in there where they're where they're battling and they're playing basketball. And and he's, he basically says, Butch, there's like two ways to do things. There's, you, you know, the, there's the right way and there's my way or whatever he says. And and it's just you can tell there's frustration there. And it, it boils over to this scene where Butch comes in and says, Hey, what I'm saying is maybe if, if if I don't stay here, does that mess up my mom's deal? Does that mess up anything back home? And um, this great scene where where first of all Pete Bell's like, man, I don't I don't know what kind of arrangement you have, and and Butch says I think you have to know what kind of arrangement I have, and and so Pete calls up the the uh, calls up the Happy and basically says to him, hey, what what's going on? And Happy screams on the other end of the phone. And this very kind of defeated Pete hangs up the phone and says, you ought to be at practice on Monday. Yeah, the implication being, of course, you know, Butch wants to leave the team. But if he leaves, then his mom loses the house and the job and everything. So obviously the answer is yes, Butch, you must stay on the team. But nobody can say that out loud. So Happy just screams over the phone. You know, Pete, if your kid is unhappy, it's your damn job to make him happy. So do your damn job, Pete. So anyway, anyway... Happy kind of runs the program at this point, not Pete. And all of a sudden, this is where the shift happens. Who's actually running the show? Who's steering the ship? And it's all going to come to a head at the media day a couple days later where, you know, all the media members are there celebrating Coach Pete, celebrating the new team. But they all see Happy hanging out there with the players. Happy shaking people's hands, got his arms around the players. And he is a known scumbag that the media knows who he is. All the people involved with basketball know who this guy is. And they start to put two and two together. They're like, why is Happy so chummy with all these kids? And this is where uh, Happy and Coach Pete are going to have a big blowout over who actually is calling the shots here, who's actually in charge, who actually owns who. And it's going to culminate in Happy dropping a bit of information on Pete that Pete did not know about that previous point shaving scandal. Well, and it starts innocently enough, right, where where Pete is there and Ricky is there and Ricky is talking to Happy and and Pete's wife basically, you know, sees that this is not what's Ricky doing talking to Happy or whatever. And so Pete walks up and basically tells Happy, get the hell out of here. And then Happy hands a set of keys to Ricky and Pete realizes that he got into this deeper than he ever thought. And he's like, I didn't authorize this. And 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 Happy said, you authorized me to do my job, to do this. Friends of the program again talking about one one of the lines he says at one point is when he talks about how his money's untraceable it's been laundered within an inch of his life it's just so good but they have the blow up about the football team and then look at tony that thing happened and now pete is heartbroken and he goes to the dorm rooms goes to the fraternity house or wherever he is and he finds tony and 
Oh, it's brutal. Yeah, okay, for for people who haven't seen this movie, Pete learned that his number one player, his star beloved kid who's almost like a son to him, Tony, really did shave points three years ago. Happy paid him off and Tony did it. So Happy starts threatening Pete here. He's like, you mess with me. I open my mouth to the media about Tony. I bury you. Everything you worried about point shaving and stuff, that was all true, Pete, and I know it. I own your ass, coach. So Pete goes to his assistant coaches. They all watch the old tapes, They and they see that Tony really did shave points three years ago. It's very obvious when you look for it in the game tapes. And so this is when Pete goes to Tony, goes to his dorm room, and basically has it out with him. This is like, again, his son. This kid was like a son to him. And Pete's like, you know, I treated you like my own child, and you did this to me. You shaved points. You ruined my reputation as the cleanest coach with the cleanest program in America. And like Paul said, this is a really tough scene to watch. It's very emotional. And Tony fighting back tears is like, coach, we won the damn game. Who gives a hell about the point spread anyway? And and t- fighting back with you took something pure and you corrupted it. And that that scene is just because because he's talking to Tony, but he's talking to himself. You took something that was so pure and you corrupted it. And again, that word corrupted is again like vinegar on the tongue. The way that he delivers that line, it's just so unfathomable to him that Tony would do this. But as he's saying it, he's saying it to himself. He can't believe that he would do this. And now he's got to come to grips with this in front of in front of his wife. He's got to he's got to think about this as himself. And all of this is now going to build up to the fact that he's. He knows that he has bitten off more than he can chew, but now they've got a game to play. Yeah, and it's funny because this game coming up here, this is the centerpiece of the movie. Like when they advertised this movie on commercials and trailers at the time, this is the centerpiece. This is the scene you're supposed to remember about this movie. And it's going to be, you know, Western against Indiana, the number one team in the country. This is the first game of the season. But Pete's heart is not really into it because he knows he's screwed up. He's lost the respect of what, Tony? He lost the respect of his coaches, lost the respect of his athletic director. He's made a deal with the devil. Uh, We kind of glossed over the fact that his ex-wife has now left him, that she's probably never going to talk to him again because she's learned that he's cheated. So, you know, after all these years of him being so, you know, noble and honest and having the cleanest program, he admits that he cheated to get these three kids here. His wife leaves him at the end and it's probably for good. And Pete's life is kind of screwed now. It's over. And what's funny is that structurally, from a screenplay point of view, the story is supposed to peak here. This is the peak of the movie, this basketball game. And that's why I think maybe this movie failed a little bit. Maybe that's why it wasn't quite as beloved or revered as it should have been, because the structure of the story requires you to be rooting for the Blue Chips team in this game, in this final game. Even though, honestly, it's really insignificant to the plot. What happens in this game is irrelevant to the rest of Blue Chips. This is not the story. So it's just a weird story structure. Would you agree with that? You know, absolutely. Absolutely. But you see, he relents right before the game starts. When they go in the locker room before the game, he he tells Butch, Butch, you're going to run this team like you want to run it. He basically says, come what may, I'm surrendering all control here. I'm going to really dance with the devil. And, and 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 gives Butch what he wants. Not that Butch is the devil here. Butch is just doing what he does. And and he says, you're going to run the show and all of this. 
And yeah, and it's such a great thing about this particular uh, moment is that, so, okay, Western University is going to play Indiana and they're shooting the movie. And Bobby Knight tells the producers, tells everyone, the director, tells everybody, um, I'm not losing. <laughs> and, and, and says, we're not setting up any scenes where my guys lose. If we're going to play, we're going to play to win. And that's really, and then you throw in, so Bobby Hurley, who played at Duke, was the starting guard for this IU team. And another guy named George Lynch, who won a national championship with North Carolina. He's playing for IU. They got a bunch of guys that are out there that are, were, were really good college basketball players that came together to do this. And they shot it in Frankfurt High School, uh, the home of the hot dogs. Matter of fact, Frankfurt Hot Dogs <laughs> in Indiana. I've been to that high school numerous times covering events there. There's blue chips memorabilia all over the all over the high school. And it's 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 just a fun place to go to. And when they shot that movie, Bobby Knight, or when they shot that those scenes, Bobby Knight said, My guys aren't laying down for anybody. So if you're gonna beat us, you're gonna have to earn it. And uh and Shaq and Penny were like, Okay, well let's do it. And they did. Yeah, you know, he's throwing out a lot of names that I know who these people are, but a lot of my non-sports fans might not know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me dumb this down a little bit for people who don't know basketball. So the final 15 minutes of this movie is a huge game between actual basketball players, basically the best college basketball players in the country. It's a real game between two teams, and they're just filming it as if it's a movie, but it's really not. It's an actual game. And the coach of the bad guys, Team Indiana, who's a real coach, Bobby Knight, refused to lay down or tank for the movie. So I was I was reading some trivia that when they were filming this movie, there's certain scenes where like Western has to make a basket and Bobby Knight wouldn't let his team give up the basket. So like the director's getting all pissed. And that's why this is legitimately maybe one of the best basketball scenes you'll ever see in a movie because they're not filming a movie. They're really playing basketball and they're really playing to win. And here's a little spoiler for you. In real life, the Western team loses. They, uh, they played two real games, and they actually lost both games. But, of course, in the magic of movies, Coach Pete Bell's team wins. They recut it so they win, blah, blah, blah. In the end of the movie, the good guys win. Pete goes out strong with a bang and is one win over the number one team in the country. Even though, and here's where I lower my voice again, in real life, Western lost that game. <laughs> um, and we get to, you know, to, to get to the end of the game, they uh, they call they call a timeout and they set up the play for all three of these guys to play a pivotal role. And it's 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 the alley-oop and it's what you see on the front cover of the movie on the VHS uh, tape and all of that. Um, and it really uh, and, and, and someone that, who I haven't mentioned yet that really brought legitimacy to this movie was Dick Vitale, the color commentator on ESPN. Um, he, he was there, he's broadcasting it throughout the movie. So we get a bit of a narrator in that part as well. Um, and then obviously, you know, I know we've been talking for almost two hours now and we've been talking about a movie that's 108 minutes. My favorite scene is the final scene, the press conference scene. It is, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Let me set you up for this one. This is, this movie has a great ending. And again, the structure of the story is weird because it had this, you know, big, huge pageantry, you know, amazingly exciting basketball game, 15 minutes long, basically right before the ending. And that's the big centerpiece of the movie. But again, that has nothing to do with the story. So it's weird. So anyway, Western wins the game. They carry Coach Pete off on their shoulders. It's a big moment. Then he goes into the locker room 
and he's like, you know what? I, that's basically the only game I'm ever going to coach you guys. And he fesses up. He's like, you know, I cheated. I, I love you guys. You played great. I taught you the best that I could how basketball works. I gave you life lessons. I was your mentor. But guys, I cheated and I can't live with myself. I can't do with this. I'm sorry. And he basically walks out on his team and goes out to the press conference where he has to face the media. And because I know you love the scene, Paul, let's talk about the final scene of the movie. The press conference where Pete Bell fesses up to everyone. Well, it's just, it's it's so good. I mean, he comes in and first of all, one of the things that is really tough for me is, again, walking into a press conference, which I have been in hundreds of in my life. And there's no applause that happens in press conferences. It's right off the bat. It so makes me so uncomfortable as a sports writer where you see the media that are cheering and clapping and you see the boosters are in the background, like get the boosters out of there. This is a, this is a place of work, right? This is where like old man yells at cloud, like press conferences are where I go to work after a game. I don't need a bunch of fans in there cheering and laughing and everything like that. But you also see other media members who are, who are clapping and cheering. And it, it reminds me of a time when I covered Wisconsin, Kentucky in the 2015 Final Four. Kentucky was undefeated that year and Wisconsin beat them. And I remember being in the press conference or, or seeing the media members behind, you know, the curtain. And two of the Kentucky TV people were saying to each other, I can't believe we just lost that game. And I was like, we? What are you on the team? Like, <laughs> and, and so I, I get uncomfortable when I see everyone cheering there. But but what happens is is you see that the one person who's not cheering is Ed O'Neill. And you know that he's on to something. And so Pete starts off again with that line, you know, 900 million Chinamen couldn't give a damn. They couldn't care less about this press conference. And then he takes a beat and he says, but I love basketball. I'm a dolphin and I just love it. And then he says, you know, sometimes the world doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me except on the basketball court. And that's good enough for me. And so you see this kind of like, this 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 pull at him that basketball is where the world is pure. And so then Ed raises his hand and he says something that I have used a million times in interviews. I got to ask this question or I wouldn't be doing my job because Ed has to ask the question. It comes down to ethics and Ed knows that the ethics were 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 skirted in this movie or in this story. And he says, can you comment on the rumor that you arranged for an automobile to be purchased for Neon Badeau? And what I love about that question is it's not, did you pay these players? It was, this is a very specific thing that I have knowledge of. I have, I can back this up. I wouldn't be asking the question unless I could back it up. He asks it and you see right away, hey man, you got to get your mind out of the gutter. You just got to start thinking straight. And you think he's going to fire back at him the same way he did in the first press conference at the beginning of the movie where he says, None of that stuff happens around here. And he pivots and he says, it's right there in front of you. For Christ's sake, it wasn't an automobile. I mean, it was a fully loaded Lexus. And he says that damn car had everything. It had everything. Didn't it, Happy? And now he's implicated the villain. And Happy, all like he wants to joke it off. He says, no, coach, it was a nuclear surfboard. Remember, he's trying to laugh it off. And Pete's not having it. And he says, you know what? Neon didn't ask for it, but other players did. And we gave it to him. You asked me to win, and I gave you that. And none of this was good enough for any of us. And it gets to the crux of the whole movie. We needed to win, but not this way. And you see the pain and the anguish in his face, in his voice, and he talks about all of that. 
and he says, it's all about money, just goddamn money. That's what it's about, Ed, and I bought into it. I bought into it big time. I'm a big part of the problem. And Happy loses his mind. Stick a fork in this creep. He's over. You'll never coach in here again. He loses his mind. They get him out of there. And now, now it gets into the lecture. Somewhere in America, there's a 10-year-old kid shooting, dribbling, and we haven't figured out how to make money on him. And when we can, we're going to corrupt that kid. And I've talked for a while here, Mario. I'm passionate about this scene because I think it's so it's some of the best writing this this speech, because it speaks to so much of, I think, what college basketball coaches want to say. But they can't because they got multimillion dollar contracts. They have to win. If they don't, they get replaced. And I think at the end of the day, so many of these guys would love to find that 10-year-old kid. In the final scene of the movie, he does find a 10-year-old kid, and he wants to help him out. And it's about the purity of basketball. But we've taken that away because we've put so much money into it. And, um, man, this scene, it's so, so good at the end. Yeah, you know, I was just going to let you go because you were doing so well. I mean, I know you're very passionate about this scene, and I have the exact same notes you do. You already said everything I was just about to say. It, it ends with this, again, for those who, who aren't big basketball players. He said, you know, the best coaching job I ever did, it wasn't tonight. It was last season. When we were 14 and 15, we had a losing season. But God damn it, those kids, they gave me their heart. And we, t- we didn't really touch on this earlier. There's a big moment beginning of the movie where he draws a heart on the board. And he says, if you guys show me that you have one of these, we might win a game. He says they gave me everything they had. They played up to their maximum of their ability and they gave it everything. And it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough for me. It wasn't good enough for you. It wasn't good enough for anybody. And then he stops and he says, that's pathetic. I mean, it's really pathetic. I've become what I despise. I've cheated my profession. I cheated myself. I cheated basketball. And he stops. And, and you see, again, how hard it is to say these words. There's two words I didn't think would ever come out of my mouth. I didn't think I'd ever be able to say I quit. And he gets up and he walks out and they show his wife and the stunned look on her face. And they show Ed O'Neill, the stunned look, everyone's stunned. And he just walks straight out of the building. And when he walks out of the building, the fans are cheering. And hey, Coach Pete, hey, way to go. These guys, they're having the time of their life. They just beat Indiana. And and he's he's walking home. And he comes across a, a court outside. And he sees a kid who's who's not shooting the ball properly, a little 10 year old kid, and he helps him. And 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 you see that maybe some purity has been introduced back into basketball. It's a great note to end the movie on. Yeah, it's funny. It's like I, I try to think like what I wanted to say after you just did that speech. And then like, again, this movie was a flop. It didn't really make a big deal. It wasn't a smash hit like people expected it to be. It's not the movie they advertise in the trailers because it's really it's a bummer of a movie. It's not happy at all. It's very depressing. And it's very much a great tragedy story buffered by, of course, these big, exciting basketball scenes that they build the whole movie around. But I have to say, there's probably another reason here why this movie, maybe why audiences didn't quite embrace it or love it like they do other some other sports movies. And there's one line in Coach's speech that does it. The one I think you didn't mention where he says, this is what we've turned basketball into. We are part of the problem. We did this. And it's basically a big middle finger pointing at the audience and every college basketball fan out there, which is an odd way to end your movie. Yeah. It's it's exceptionally powerful. I love that message. And I think it's a very valuable message and probably very necessary too. 
because I agree with it. I think 100% that fans are usually the reason things become the thing that they do. It's uh, the, uh, like a sport becomes what the fans want. You you cater to what the fans demand. So I think it's a very powerful middle finger right towards every college basketball fan out in the country. And I just wanted to point that out. I think that's a great, great point because there's so much in college basketball over the last since this movie's come out. There's been the scandal at Michigan. There's been the scandals at, you know, Rick Pitino's in this movie. He had some stuff going on. Um, you know, there's a school named Western Kentucky. Um, they have a coach who's, who's basically known for just, you know, paying for players. And if you mention that to any Western Kentucky fan, they'll lose their minds, you know, because nobody wants to know. Nobody wants the curtain pulled back. Nobody wants to know that, that, oh, you mean this guy doesn't love Duke University? You means he got paid to come to school here, that he doesn't worship this place the same way that we do? Nobody wants to know about that. They And same thing in professional sports. Everyone thinks, oh, they want to chase a ring. They want to chase. If everyone wanted to chase a ring, they'd go play for the same four teams all the time, but they don't. They want to get paid. It's all about money. You know, we've made this about money. And that's a great line that he has. And I love that you brought that up because most of us like to live in our ambivalence. <laughs> we like to live in our, our, our naivety a little bit or our, our, our ignorance, I should say, not ambivalence, our ignorance on this stuff. And um, I think you're right. I, you know, I think if you're inside college basketball, you'll love this movie. I think if you're on the periphery of it, you don't want to love this movie. And I think if you're not a basketball fan at all, you're like, what, what is, what's going on? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Who are these guys? Um, Shaq's in a movie. Okay, fine. I guess I'll try it out. Uh, and that's probably why, again, it, I think for the people on the inside of college basketball, this movie is a very special film. And for the people who are on the second layer outside of it, it's, it's almost unwatchable because it's kind of like rounders in the poker community. If you play poker, you'll love rounders. If you don't play poker, what the hell? Straight flush? Full, full, what are they talking about? Yeah, this is a movie that most definitely makes people uncomfortable. And I pointed out two of the parts earlier in the movie where, you know, I'm white. I should get a little more money because you need a white superstar. Or, and then the principal saying, oh, you come here to my, you know, get my slaves. You want to buy my slaves? This boy here can read. Why don't you buy him? Like, these are uncomfortable truths about how college sports works. And they're presented very matter-of-factly in the movie. And they're not meant to make you feel good. So, again, this is just one of those movies. I'm really glad you pitched it to me for staff picks because it's not one that would have ever crossed my mind as a staff picks episode. Again, I don't think it has a lot of mainstream appeal. It wasn't a hit. It's not really a feel-good movie. And, like, the basketball scenes are great. I love the basketball scenes. But they're not the point of the movie. But I really do like movies that can make you genuinely uncomfortable and, like, in a truth way. Like, not just a horror movie way where they're just jump-scaring you to death or gore-festing you and make you feel uncomfortable. Like, there's so much truth in this movie, and it makes you uncomfortable, but in a way it makes you wiser. And I really like movies like that. Hey, I 100% agree. And again, this one's always had a special place in my heart. I think about it often. I will fight people who think that this is, uh, that Hoosiers is better um and uh and and i really appreciate the chance to, to sit down with you for a couple hours and talk about this movie yeah this has been great and for people who don't know this is the first time paul and i have ever actually met i've never talked to him period before this podcast so yeah i thought we had a good rapport you know we went a little long but that's usually a sign that we just had a lot to say that's not really a bad thing that's more that's more a problem for me to work on in the editing later but yeah 
I'm really glad that we finally got a chance to meet. And anytime you want to come on for another sports movie, it doesn't have to be basketball. Although I know there's a lot of good basketball movies. But yeah, just let me know anytime you want to come on and we'll make it happen. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up the episode. Once again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. I mean, you guys asked me to win, and I gave that to you, right? The alumni are all jerking off over this win, which is the only time the alumni ever jerk off, right, is when we win. Because this ain't about education. It ain't much about winning, and it sure as hell ain't much about basketball. It's about money. Just goddamn money.